Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Buskey. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all the separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. and welcome to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I am your host, Marie Buskey, and this is the place where we discuss the issues through a cultural lens and how ideologies are impacting our everyday lives. This morning, I speak with Australian poet and survivor of the sex trade, Rose Hunter, about her new book, Body Shell Girl. It's a memoir of her life using the medium of poetry. I then welcome to RCR His Excellency Jolt Hetashi, Hungarian ambassador to New Zealand. Hungary is a country that holds a great fascination for me. It has bucked the trend of many of its EU neighbours, and I'm looking forward to chatting to Jolt about what sets Hungary apart in its journey back from a communist bloc state to reclaiming its vibrant heritage and culture. Marty will be back with Media Matters, and we'll catch up on how negotiations are progressing, or not, and what else has caught our eye in the media landscape this week. And fear not, we'll be heading to Aotearoa Farm in a moment. It's time to head back down to Aotearoa Farm, and the sun is shining, and the birds are chirping on the farm. In the holding pen, adjacent to the farmhouse, the sheep are gathered, bleating quietly amongst themselves. Surely they must come to a decision soon, opined one. How long has it been already, moaned another. Why won't Winnie talk to us? chimed in a third. It looks like hard times are afoot with our ovine friends, as even after Chippy was asked to stay on a little longer whilst Winky took the task of wrangling Winnie Ben and Davy Piglet into a semblance of an agreement, Squealer hadn't been around with the extra feed rations, something that the sheep had become accustomed to. The stock movements from the central farmyard to the back paddocks had already begun, 
sullen-looking pigs, sheep, cattle and cats, all bloated from the feeding regime of previous years, were being reassigned to leaner pastures, and no one seemed happy. Oinky was putting on a brave face, cheerily informing the sheep that negotiations were on track, and there was nothing to worry about here. Winnie just continued with his just smile and wave boys routine and jauntily trotted past the sheep with a massive grin and a gleam of white teeth whenever they attempted to catch his eye. And Davy Piglet even seemed more settled, perhaps helped by the additional one-on-one sessions from Nigel the Packhorse. The only pigs that appeared to be in a rage were the free-range pigs. Showy Salbrick along with Moonbeam and the simpering little chihuahua called Ricky had decided to take up the cause to free all the desert dogs, something that perplexed many in the wider farm, as this farm was half a world away and were decidedly hostile to any pigs or chihuahuas. But Showy wasn't going to let facts stand in the way of a good outrage and continued her prostatizing to any passing animal bored enough to listen. Deb and Dave were also busy. The years since Farmer John had left had been good for Kunikuni. Their wallows had grown in size and access to all benefits of the farm had improved, without little way in return of work. All this was afforded under the protection of the new interpretation of Kiwi Farm's original charter, strangely coinciding at the same time that the farm's name changed to Aotearoa Farm. Davy Piglet was very keen to take this issue back to all the farmyard animals, and Deb and Dave knew that the life to which they had become accustomed could come to a very, very abrupt end. Deb and Dave were spending as much time as they could with the sheep, alluding to an uprising from the kunikuni at any changes. The sheep motivated by boredom, half-heartedly reported their intentions, but without the additional feed, motivation was decidedly lacklustre. So as the sheep yawned and chewed and yearned from news from other farms, all the other animals waited for the news of the farmhouse. How will Winky decide who sits where around the farmhouse table, and what concession does he need to make? Well, we all must wait another week for this answer. So join me again here for Aotearoa Farm, exclusively on Counterculture with Reality Check Radio. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio with Marie. Joining me now is Rose Hunter, a poet whose memoir Body Shell Girl is a powerful retelling of her story in verse and quite a story it is. I was introduced to you via Ali Marie Diamond who has been here on the show from Wahine Toa Rising. Welcome Rose to Counterculture. Thanks so much. It's lovely to be here and I really enjoyed your uh, episode with Ali Marie as well. Oh, Ellie Marie is wonderful. She's been such a resource, actually. She knows so many fascinating people. And you look like, too, you have an incredible story. So walk us through that. Sure. So I uh, I spent uh, 10 years in the sex industry all up, uh, which was not my intention when I started. I uh, started in the industry in 1997 when I was 25. I had a pretty unhappy existence in Australia for many reasons and I took a um, working holiday visa for Canada 
without a lot of savings in um, to spare. And I got a job at a Photoshop in Canada uh, initially, and then I lost that job uh, through my own incompetence, I have to say. <laughs> but then I was without uh, rent and I needed rent quickly and I wanted to stay in Canada. Coming back to Australia was sort of like uh, death to me, uh, which I could get into, but maybe I'll, uh, yeah, that's going to be a longer story. So so determined to stay in Canada, determined to pay my rent. Uh, I saw the ads in the paper, uh, no experience necessary, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, cash paid daily, exclamation mark. That that was for a massage parlour. Had an inkling, I think, what a massage parlour might be, but not much of one. Uh, but I went to the interview and um uh, they needed someone straight away, so the interview turned into my first shift. I was amazed that with my desperation, I guess, that I could do it. Now, this wasn't a brothel. It wasn't full-service prostitution. It was what they call happy endings, so it was a nude massage and hand job. I pretty much had no uh, idea that I would be able to do that. I thought I wouldn't be able to do it, but I was really determined and really desperate. So that was how I started off. And the idea was to initially was to pay my rent and just stay in it a couple of months and then go back to uh, some regular employment just to get me out of my hole. How that turned into 10 years is actually the topic of my book um, that was published last year by uh, Spinifex Press. It's a great Australian uh, feminist uh, publisher. They publish a lot of things that the um, uh, mainstream publishers aren't interested in, including critiques of, of the sex industry. So, yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah, a bit no. about my story so far. <laughs> so when you saw that ad, what was the legal situation in Canada at the time around that type of work? So were you actually having to break the law in, to, in order to conduct your job or was that legalised or decriminalised in Canada at that point? Back then, I had very little idea about these issues. This was sort of pre-Googling things for me. <laughs> so I relied on the information that the girls uh, told me at the parlour, you know, uh, which, you know, some of which was reliable and some of which probably wasn't. So the situation with uh, massage parlours in Ontario, because the provinces in Canada had different laws, was that they, it, it was, the situation was that it was technically illegal in the sense that undercover officers could come in and the place could be busted. But Basically, they were looking for people who were running a brothel. So basically full service, not just your happy endings. Mm -hmm. So as long as you were just doing your happy endings, you were probably okay. Uh, the story that went around was that if an undercover officer came in, and I did see a few, and you offered full service, then they could take down the whole parlour and everyone in it. So you were sort of a bit scared of what other girls, the mistakes other girls might make. And the mistakes that I might make also, because you also weren't supposed to um, say, oh, yes, the hand jobs included or anything like that. You were just call, call them extras in a very vague sort of manner. But it was difficult to make tips that way. So often you would just have to say exactly what you were offering, you know, mm. um, to make your money for that shift. 
How many just actual massages did you do? Like, was it what I mean? Did everybody want a happy ending, or did was the cherry on top only for a select few? According to the bosses, the happy ending was included, but you basically didn't want to tell the client that. <laughs> I, I call them clients back in those days, so that's a bit of a slip into my old language. But these days, I would call them sex buyers or sexual service buyers rather than clients, which gives it this respectability that Mm. um, I don't think it has. So technically it was included. Your extras would be a topless massage, a nude massage, and a nude reverse, which is where they could massage you and touch you within reason. But you you often didn't want to present it that way, but that that was the unofficial thing. And I I did work in a lot of (laughs) massage parlors, unfortunately, in Ontario, and they did seem to be all the same in that respect. So once you started, and as you said, with desperation, you you didn't know whether you could do it, but you were the, in the industry for 10 years. So when was that point where something challenging that you've never done before made way to something normal that then made way to something that became harmful and detrimental? Yeah, thanks for that question because I meant to address that. Yeah, I mean, basically that question is why I wrote the book. I never sort of understood why I had spent 10 years in this industry, exactly how that had happened. So that was my working question when I came to write this book. And it was something after a while that I was very ashamed of and I had a lot of trauma from those years. You know, the the answer that I came up with, so I moved to um, Vancouver in my second year in Canada. Vancouver has different laws to Ontario. British Columbia has different laws to Ontario. I didn't know that when I got there, so I thought I'll just work in a a massage parlour as before. They didn't really exist there the same way, so I ended up in a brothel, and that's when I did full service for the first time. And that was really, I want to say difficult, but of course it was way more than that. It was really traumatic a little bit after that, I was raped in a in a brothel. You know, I've come to see that, you know, some feminists say it, it's all rape in brothels because it's all sex that you don't want to have and you wouldn't have unless the, the sex buyer offered you money for it, you know. So I can say that uh, the one uh, that happened in Vancouver there was maybe a violent rape compared to all the unwanted <laughs> mm. stuff that, uh, that went on as well. By that stage, I was really traumatised. You know, I certainly don't want to um, erase my personal responsibility there. I shouldn't have got myself in this situation. You know, there were reasons why I did prior trauma, uh, addiction and some other things. However, I do bear some personal responsibility there and I did struggle with that for a long time. But in short, I became very traumatised and and what happens when you're traumatised is it's very difficult to imagine alternate uh, alternate future for yourself. So um, it became very difficult to get out. It became very difficult to imagine that I could ever do anything else to earn money because by this stage I'm 26, 27, and I had never actually held down a job in a significant way in my life that supported me. This was the only thing I'd ever done that had paid my rent. So I was attached to it for that reason. You know, that's a big thing. Mm. (laughs) It was always a struggle for me. Finances were always a struggle for me. 
And I also thought by that stage, I thought I've been hurt, they've hurt me, now I'm going to earn off them, now they're going to pay for that, you know. Uh, That was extremely unuseful way of looking at it because the person who really paid was me over and over again and I got enough money to to live on. But uh, when I finally did exit the industry in 2008, uh, you know, the things I left with were alcoholism, uh, tranquilizer, addiction, no money, only debt, <laughs> and uh, a heaping of trauma. And uh, the next year, you know, I, I almost died through through that. Abusive relationships were another thing that happened, and it all gets linked up into this uh, toxic stew when things uh, start going wrong like that, you know. It really becomes a rolling snowball and Mm. and that's what happened to me. The attitude of sex buyers, that's something that I've spoken to both Ali Marie about and Helen Taylor about and that seems to have changed. Did you note a change between going from the massage parlour with a happy ending through to a full service brothel? Was there a quite a distinctive difference to those buyers in terms of expectation, attitude, power dynamic that you saw? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I should mention that after my uh, year in the the brothel, or it wasn't quite a year, but almost in Vancouver, I did go back to massage parlours once I returned to Ontario which is where I spent the rest of, you know, mm. eight or nine years. And so I, I did go back to basically the happy ending structure, but I did out-call uh, massage, so it was just at hotels and stuff, but the services were basically the same. The, the damage necessarily for your psyche would have been done in that, you know, more so in that year, I would have thought. Yeah, and this is the thing, like um, I think for me definitely – Brothel work is worse. I can say that. It's worse than massage parlour work for sure. However, I don't want to minimise the damage that massage parlour work does as well because, I mean, these guys, uh, they they want to get their money's worth so they're going to grope you as much as they can and they're going to go as far as they can. And I, I've had uh, violent uh, buyers in the parlours and there's usually no one to protect you because the bosses don't want to be there in case the place gets busted. The attitudes of, of the buyers, I mean, I find a lot of commonality really. I think the only difference I would say is not whether it's massage or brothel but whether it's high end or low end really that's that's the difference I found I worked in both because for a while I I didn't have a a working visa which was another stupid thing that I did Uh, so I worked in some low end places and I'm going to say they were worse too (laughs) you know (laughs) as you would expect I mean it sounds like a stereotype but it was true so the buyers were just don't get me wrong, there's some horrible, uh, wealthy, educated buyers, many of them, but I did find a, a worse situation in the lower end places. I think the entitlement all around on the part of the buyer, and I'm really glad that you brought that up because I think we analyse the women so much 
And I think we should be analysing uh, the buyers. And the same when we have an article on uh, the sex industry in the paper or online, it's always got a woman in a miniskirt and high heels or it's just it's just chopped off that bit of her body to put in the picture. And what I think we should do is show the Johns, show the buyers. And there's a woman in, in Germany, Ellie Arrow, who posted that on her Twitter uh, some time ago, but I sort of keep reposting it regularly because it shows the picture of the buyers and that's who we should be focusing on to end demand, I believe. So uh, the entitlement is on their part is that they've paid for this so uh, they can do whatever they want and they want to get their money's worth. That was my experience of a lot of them. I'm not going to say all of them at all, but a lot of them, yeah. Mm. Well, because the focus on the sex buyer is certainly what the Nordic model concentrates on, from what I understand, and that is showing some success because without the demand, you wouldn't need to have supply. I mean, you talked about how you entered into this from a fiscal point of view, but when you were working, you I'm sure you created camaraderies with other women at work. What were some of the drivers for them? Was it money? Was it addiction? Was it trauma? Or as you said, was it a toxic stew of all of the above? I would say it's always money. I mean, there's no reason to do this if you don't need the money. Uh, I mean, uh, maybe there's like 1% or 0.5% <laughs> of women who might think, oh, this is going to be a sexy time because they think they can actually choose their johns or something weird like that. And I do see that sort of attitude in the media quite often among some women who imagine that this industry is a completely different thing from what it is. They had uh, that whole Julia Roberts, this is going to be a pretty woman type yeah. situation. Yeah. yeah, if it was Richard Gere, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm picking that you didn't come across many Richard Gears in your time. I didn't. I'm not going to say that all the men were awful, though, at all. I mean, there were some really human interactions. I This is why I think education is really important in educating sex buyers of exactly what they're buying, because when you're in this industry, you want to get regulars, particularly if they seem like decent guys, because the more decent guy regulars you have, the less oddball, weirdo, dangerous guys you, you have to mix with, right? So it's within your interest to keep these these uh, nicer, you know, decent mm. regulars. So, of course, you present it as something that you love doing. You love doing this, right? Because that's what they want to hear. They're not going to become a regular of yours if, you, if you're unenthusiastic or tell them I'm just doing this for the money, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. or and I'm I mean, and or any of that. Right. And what's probably drawing them there is either driving loneliness or really dysfunctional relationships at home. So the last thing they want is to unpack what's already making them unhappy, I'm sure. It can be. I mean, it's definitely one reason, you know, uh, and it is a lonely society that, that we have. And so I think those men, some of them, <laughs> if they understood the context of this and they understood that oh, actually, you know, uh, she's she's pretending. I mean, people do believe what they want to believe, what's convenient for them to believe often, you know, and I've done it myself for sure. So I think some of the nicer men who are sex buyers are in that 
category of just having the blinkers on, which we can all do at times, and it's working for me nicely. So I just want to, you know, keep my belief in this and that it's not going to harm her. It's going to help her get ahead in life and, and whatever they're telling themselves. That's why I think education and focusing on on the men is important. So you left in 2008. Where to from there for you? So my story is uh, not typical in, in, well, I don't know what's typical actually, so I shouldn't say that. But uh, So I actually had a, a Bachelor of Arts degree before I got in the industry because I got in the industry at 25. Uh, so I used that Bachelor of Arts uh, degree to get a job teaching in Mexico, which was close to where I was in Canada at the time. I'd just been to Mexico briefly and fell in love with it and thought, you know, uh, I want to live here. And um, I finally, finally made the decision to leave um, to leave Toronto because I wanted to burn all the bridges. I thought if I wanted to quit, I wanted to get out of the industry, and I thought if I get out of the industry and stay in Toronto, it's too easy to go back as soon as my other jobs fail or I screw them up or something like that. So I thought I'll just burn that bridge completely, go to a different country. I'm I'm probably, I have no idea how this works in Mexico and probably very little interest in trying to find out. So I got a job teaching uh, English at a school in Mexico. So I went uh, there and I did that for a few months. By that time, my, well, uh, for for many years by then, my alcoholism was pretty severe. And so I messed up that job. Uh, I left that job in an alcoholic blackout, just got on a bus and went to a different part of Mexico. Uh, If you have any listeners who are alcoholics, they might be able to relate to that, what seems like bizarre behavior to most people. Uh, but we do sometimes do that sort of thing. And then I, the closest place was uh, Puerto Vallarta. I was in Guadalajara and uh, immediately got in an abusive relationship with another alcoholic, uh, entered into a really horribly abusive relationship, and which uh, eventually, because of the damage that I suffered there, uh, I finally showed up on the doorsteps of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. And so that's uh, sort of when my very, very slow recovery started. Getting out of the industry was one thing, but it was Getting actually... out of the toxicity that got you there in the first place was an entirely different thing. Mm. Yeah, they, as they say, like you can escape the situation, but you, you're still, yourself is <laughs> still mm. going to be there afterwards yeah yeah and alcoholism having I mean I've known some alcoholics and it seems incredibly difficult and I think it's a difficult to leave but the social acceptance of the substance to begin with it's not looked upon socially it doesn't have the same stigmas as other forms of addiction and it can be very very difficult to get that help so the fact that you were able to as you said stumble into AA to start that journey must we do you look back now and you think to yourself, well, you know, where would I be if I hadn't walked into that first meeting? Absolutely. I think that all the time. Uh, I love the program. I, I do have some criticisms of it as well, but overall I, I love it and uh, the individuals in it I love uh, in particular and uh, one of them definitely saved my life uh, and finding AA definitely saved my life. I mean, um 
the uh, the the wish that I had have would be that I I could have discovered that earlier because uh, I think while that was going on it was really hard to get out of the industry and of course what I told myself when I was in the industry regarding alcohol was well I need it to go to these calls to go by that stage it was massage out call to put on the performance to put on the act there's no way I could do this without alcohol harder to tell on radio but I am a, a very shy sort of quiet person uh, which is another stereotype people think we aren't but uh, from my experience of the other other women uh, there's a lot of us who are quiet and shy we do it for the money not because we're extroverts <laughs> yeah that was the reason for the for the alcohol I, I told myself all those years I thought as soon as I quit this industry I will quit the alcohol because I won't need it anymore that's what I thought so to my surprise I quit the industry and it actually got worse the alcohol wow. actually got worse because I hadn't dealt with any of the trauma of, of the industry at all and I had it in mind that I would just forget everything that had happened in those 10 years, they're over, right? I'm just going to move on. <laughs> this is what I thought back then. I sort of had this attitude probably uh, because of the industry. I mean, stuff happens, horrible stuff happens, and you dust yourself off and you go see the next buyer, you know. Uh, it it promotes, a for those of us who stay in it, a toughness like that. And so I thought, well, you know, that's what I'll do. I'll just forget all this new life. Here we go. Yeah, to, to my to my huge surprise, I had a raft of other problems to deal with. <laughs> yeah. So where does poetry fit into the mix? Yeah, so I always had it. Well, not always, but uh, I had an interest in writing, uh, particularly I'd say uh, since around about I, I, when I started uh, in the industry, I had a big interest in reading before that. I think all writers have to have that. And I did, my BA was in English, although mostly focused in on film studies, cultural studies, but I had always been a big reader. So I continued reading, reading, reading over the years in, in parlours, et cetera, because <laughs> there's a lot of hours in the waiting rooms there. So I started writing journal entries. I never had the confidence to write myself. I just didn't think that that was something I was allowed to do. I have very, very low self-esteem. That's another part of my story, a lot of self-loathing, having been told I was stupid and all these other things. So I I was a reader but not a writer because I didn't think I would. I was allowed. Um, but I started writing journals, I think, to cope with some of the stuff that was going on in the industry. That was my outlet was I would write it all down, write it all down. And I, I wrote, um, yeah, I, I filled up steno notepad after steno notepad in those days, longhand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually remember the exact moment I was walking, I think it was was on Church Street in <laughs> Toronto and downtown, and uh, I was thinking about a journal entry I'd written and uh, I thought, you know, those journal entry, that journal entry, it's like one of those short stories that you like reading. And then I thought, oh, I could probably turn that into a short story. And really that's the moment when I thought, oh, I'd like to do that. So I started off writing short stories, actually, not poetry. Uh, I love the form. I love short stories. So I sort of converted journal <laughs> entries into short stories and then slowly developed an interest in poetry 
and started writing poetry really when I was, I started writing poetry sort of in a very sporadic form earlier, but started writing more of it really when I got to Mexico. And that's where my interest in poetry grew and connected with other people online who were doing it, which was a really important thing for me because I didn't come up with any writing mentors or programs or funding or any of that. It was it was me within a on Blogger in those days with mm-hmm. other writers who were publishing on bloggers and we used to read each other's blogs and poems in very small online journals before that was really popular. And so yeah, that's that's how it happened. The community was a big part of it, being able to have those other poets that I really never met in person, but online. So you've now actually published a number of books. So how did you manage to get that connection to be able to publish and to actually get your work out there to a wider audience? How did that sort of manifest? Well, I did it very poorly in the start because I had no idea what I was doing. Not that I, I have a really great idea now, but I've certainly learned a lot of things through making a lot of mistakes. The, the first book that happened happened via one of those uh, blogger people who started a uh, small press because a very DIY kind of DIY, that's the expression, isn't it, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> community. And so he just liked my stuff, so he asked if he could publish it as a book, and I went, oh, okay. In retrospect, some of that work, if I was mentoring me (laughs) from the position now, I would have said, yeah, great, but develop that a little bit more, you know, before before you get it out there. Take some more time, uh, develop a bit more as a poet before publishing that. But obviously there, there were really good aspects to it as well. Uh, just sort of in in the very small press arena for for some years, and I was in Mexico this whole time, so I didn't do much in Australia. It was all um, small publishers in the US mostly. And then I got a book published by Five Islands Press in Australia uh, that was published in 2017. They were an excellent Australian poetry publishing house. Unfortunately, they've gone under. <laughs> Uh, now, uh, but they really published some really good stuff. So that was a really good thing for me. And I I got that publication simply through their open reading period, no connections. Uh, I just submitted a manuscript to an an open reading period they had each year. Regarding the, the book, The Reason Why I'm Here Today, Body Shell Girl, about this industry, when I started writing the book, I wasn't sure what attitude it was going to take because I still had to process a lot of stuff that had happened in this industry and, you know, if I'd understood it all, I wouldn't have written the book, you know. So the book, the writing of the book was my way of sorting through what I thought about that and when I realised, you know, how negative (laughs) the industry had been for me, I realised it had not been positive but uh, I didn't realise the extent to which it it was bad. Uh, when I saw the book was going in that direction and started to get a bit more consciousness about these issues by reading some other spin effects books, actually, among among other books about this, including Sheila Jeffrey's mm-hmm. book, The Idea of Prostitution, that we were talking about before today, uh, before we started chatting here. Yeah, I really started gaining a consciousness of that that I had not had at the time. At the time, it was all my fault, and I just simply should have done better in life. And I didn't see how structures had uh, social structures 
had participated in the difficulties that I'd had and the trauma that I'd experienced. I really took it on all myself. So the book was starting to get an idea of that. And when I realised that, I queried Spin Effects Press because I knew they had published that sort of stuff because I had read their books before. Mm. So that's, uh, yeah, that's a long answer to your question. No, so, <laughs> so you wrote the book. You've come, you obviously have come back to Australia. So what prompted you to go from Mexico, which you obviously is where you found sobriety, yeah. and what brought you home? Yeah, I do love Mexico and I feel like it's my heart home. Uh, I'm here at the moment. I'm doing a PhD in creative writing, uh, which is amazing, something I definitely couldn't have done in my alcoholic years or in my industry years. And uh, so that's I think that's the main reason why I'm back in Australia now is uh, to to complete that. So now through the sober lens and with the lens of time, and being back in Australia too, what are some of your thoughts just casting your eye across like even here in New Zealand and the fact that you know Ali Marie, we've had decrim here in this country now for 20 years. What are some of the comparisons and observations you have between a society where it is still criminal versus decrim, positives, negatives, and where the industry appears to be moving now from the time it was that you were in it in the late 90s and early noughties? I have to say at the outset, legal aspects are not my forte, but I can, uh, yeah, Ali Marie is much sharper on this than I am. But I can say what I've observed, uh, which is I think, I mean, I think it's really tragic, uh, New Zealand and Australia and the way we're, we're going here. In Canada, I understand they adopted the Nordic model, but what I've heard is it's a watered-down Nordic model. That's just what I've heard. Obviously, I have no experience of it, and I think that happened in around 2013 or so, uh, which was after I left the industry. Um, mostly what I can observe is through comparing Ontario and British Columbia. In British Columbia, uh, in, in Ontario, um, I believe brothels were entirely illegal. I mean, that's why there were undercovers coming in, checking that we weren't doing brothel activities in a parlour, right? Whereas Vancouver, they were very visible. They had the signs out. You could walk past and see them. I remember uh, one of the the brothels I worked in initially, which was quite a high-end brothel because I still had my visa. We all used to be out on the the side balcony in our evening gowns at 10 a.m. or whenever it was smoking, you know, and it was just it was just really visible street prostitution, very visible there. A lot of poverty back then in Vancouver. It was it was sort of the known to be the worst for that. So there was a lot of visible prostitution there. And as I mentioned, I, I my experience was trying to work in Vancouver is I had way less choice. If I wanted to be in the sex industry. I would have to be in a brothel. I couldn't do my happy ending, <laughs> you know, lesser harm. I'm going to say that's lesser harm. Uh, I wasn't able to do that where uh, where the brothels were either decrim or legalised. I'd have to look it up. You'd have to look up, you know, the BC Vancouver laws in 1999, which was when I was there, <laughs> um. to find that out. But my impression was uh, very illegal in Ontario and uh, either legal or decrim in in uh, Vancouver, and Vancouver was way worse in terms of uh, in terms of working. 
yeah, that's the main conclusion I can draw yeah. from my own personal experience. Yeah. Are you doing any work now in, in that space in terms of advocacy for those wanting to either leave the space or support with those who are needing, whether it be addiction or trauma, to help move on? Or are you using that vehicle through your writing? So I have done some activist activities and I'm really interested in that. Like there's the WEEP uh, conference that we had recently in Brisbane, that's Women Ending Exploitation by Prostitution. Uh, which is a really great organisation. Mostly uh, I focus on telling my story and, as mentioned, let Ali Marie and other people uh, deal more with the legal aspects. What I'm most interested in in terms of sharing my story is sharing what I would have wanted to hear back then from someone, like the messages I got from the media and whatnot back then were uh, sex workers empowering. And I was thinking, hmm, that's not really the reality I'm seeing in front of me. And then I, because I I just had no self-esteem and a bunch of other issues, I thought, well, it's probably because I'm doing it wrong. Like I'm just not cool for starters. And back then I really wanted to be cool as well. <laughs> I'm not cool. I'm wrong. These people are telling me it's this thing and it, this empowering thing and it probably could be. So why don't I try and do that? And so, so I really tried to uh, do that. I was unable to see that it was sexy and empowering. So I thought, well, the next best thing is I'll pretend I think it's sexy and empowering, <laughs> you know. And, uh, you know, and added to that, no one really wants to if you're doing something horrible, you really don't want to admit the horribleness that it yes. is because then you have to face it and the next logical thing would be you have to try and get out and if you have no idea how to get out, that's a really demoralising experience. So it's another one of those believing what we, we want to believe situations and I think there's a lot going on in the industry like that, um, including the some of the buyers, as mentioned. I didn't have a lot of consciousness about what was going on with me and so when I hear people say, well, I have a friend who's in the industry and she thinks it's fine, she doesn't have a problem with it, I have to say, look, I don't know what the reality is with your friend, I'm not her, but I can tell you that if you had asked me when I was in the industry, hey, what's it like? I would have said it's fine. I would have said it's a job like any other, you know, and you say that often enough and you do start to believe it, which is why for me it took years to see the reality of what had gone on. And, and this is common to abuse survivors of all descriptions, domestic abuse, child abuse. We don't want to see it. And it's so hard to see. So I guess that's where I think I can contribute is telling my story of coming through that and telling my story of coming through into consciousness that this isn't okay. You know, you deserve better. We all do. Uh, this isn't how women should be treated. This isn't what men should think that they can treat women this way. This is this is not uh, promoting our humanity. This is um, stunting it. So all those sorts of things is more the message I have in terms of psychology and, and uh, general trends, yeah. Oh, well, it's been an incredible journey, and thank you so much for sharing all of this with us today. Uh, the book, of course, is called Body Shell Girl. It's available from Spinifex Press. We will make sure that we have a link to that book if you want to order. And 
As Rose mentioned, uh, Professor Sheila Jeffries, who I interviewed here several months ago, all of her body of work is also available there. And of course, Ali Marie Diamond, who I've interviewed as well from Wahine Toa Rising. So there's plenty of information available. If you want to hear more interviews in and around this topic, just go to the RCR app, go to my counterculture page, and then look at replays and you'll be able to find and download and play all of those from there. Rose, thank you so much for your time today. It is um it's absolutely fascinating and I can't wait to get a copy of the book and read it. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you so much for your really wonderful questions. That was great. Oh, you're most, most welcome. Don't disappear. More great content here to come with Counterculture. Marty, of course, will be back where we will chew over the, all the shenanigans and politics this week. And hopefully we've got some time for Woke News of the Week here on Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to RCR and Counterculture here with Marie. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this interview, I was introduced to Rose by the wonderful Ali Marie Diamond from Wahine to Rising. Rose also made reference to Professor Sheila Jeffries, who I interviewed here back in early August. The replay is on my Counterculture page, and much of Sheila's work is also available from Spinifex Press, including the book referenced by Rose. And don't forget to send us your feedback and thoughts to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. And I have got some great feedback from last week's show. Firstly, from Greg, a big thank you for providing real journalism. It's been a real pleasure to listen to the wide range of people and topics on RCR. As for Aotearoa Farm, any chance of putting this out on a CD? This would make a great Christmas present. Many thanks, Greg. Well, there's an idea, Greg. I did pass that on to the merchandise team. Isabel said, Marie, you totally outdid yourself today with Animal Farm. I was laughing my head off whilst walking the dog, and I think I got a few funny looks. Oh, thank you so much. From the interview I did with Neil James, I haven't knitted from for several decades. I do recall it was soothing yet challenging experience. After listening to the interview and chat, it appears that even the knitting world is not safe from the Wokies. And that was from Heidi. And Kaz said, who would have thought you knitting people? I know that, believe me, there are some crazy knitters out there. Thoroughly enjoyed Media Matters today. Absolute gold. I also love Marty's voice. I could listen to him for hours. Ah, good job. So that's from Beth. Hi, Marie. Well, what a great morning of consuming all you presented this morning. In particular, time with Marty on Media Matters. So good to hear your analysis after what I heard on mainstream media. Your last segment with the speaker at the UK conference, which was the Constantin Kissin speech from the art conference. And my time in the flower garden has flown. And I have a little clear patch to plant some veggies that would not fit in the man's veggie garden. Thank you so much. Thank you, Marty and Marie. Your words make sense to my mind. Expressing words so well how I feel. Please become politicians and go to the beehive. Save us from all the traitors. Oh, I can tell you right now, that's probably the last thing that Marty and I want to do, but thank you. It's a lovely thought. Hi, Marie. I love your work. I've just tried to get onto Liberty Itch uh, and got an error message. That's from Lisa, and we have actually had that fixed. So thank you for that. Hi Marie, on the topic of gender ideology, my daughter in her late teens now reported two years ago that it was rare to find a single book in the young adult section of our local library that didn't have rainbow characters as the central story. She figured that out on her own accord and has dulled her appetite for reading a bit sadly as she felt it was out of balance and not interesting to her. And it's not like I, as a parent, would have any idea of the content of the books in that section of the library as I don't read young adult fiction. Maybe we should. Just my two cents. 
Always love your work. Cheers, Wendy. Actually, Wendy, it's so interesting you say that. I have to admit, I did read some young adult fiction a while ago when I first heard about this, and it was amazing. I mean, A, the quality of the writing often is very good. But yeah, I hadn't been aware at how much um, had sort of crept in there. And it does worry me how a lot of our kids are becoming disengaged because they don't feel that the content, in order to provide content that appeals to a very small group of people, they have gone and disenchanted a very, very large group of readers. So I totally get your point. Hey, thank you so much for all that incredible feedback. And it was actually Mountains from last week. That is just a segment. As I said, 2057 is the text number and info at realitycheck.radio. Right now, free speech is under heavy attack in New Zealand, with the government constantly devising new ways to enforce censorship. To revive honest media and support RCR, join our Foundation Membership Club today. To learn more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members. Morning and welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. Of course, you are with Marie. And this morning, I have a most excellent guest. And he's most excellent because he's His Excellency, Hungarian Ambassador Jolt Hirschi. Thank you very much, Marie. Thank you very much for having me on this program. Oh, so wonderful to have you. And I've been wanting to talk to you because Hungary is a country that has fascinated me for a long time, and particularly with an interest that I have in politics, because while the rest of the world is looking outward and globally, Hungary has actually achieved great success by looking inward. So tell me a little bit more about you, how you ended up in New Zealand first, because you were Minister for Foreign Trade and Affairs, and now you're here. So there's a story here for us to unpack, Schott. <laughs> well, yes. Let's 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 start with the, the personal details. Mm-hmm. Um, indeed, um, I had a career of 33 years now. I think in the civil service, it was kind of half and half. Uh, I divided it up uh, between national security and. Uh, diplomacy. When it comes to diplomacy, a couple of my friends would say that I have spent too much time in the United States. Altogether, in three different postings, I have spent there 14 years. Okay, So just before I came here to New Zealand in 2021, I finished a nine-year stint in the United States, which means that I was the deputy ambassador in New York at our permanent mission to the United Nations for four years. And then I had uh, five years in Washington as the deputy ambassador there. I started with uh, President Obama, uh, four years with President Trump, and I finished with President Biden. And then in 2021, I was asked by the minister to come and become the second ambassador of Hungary to New Zealand. This is basically the short story. How are you finding? I mean, because it's almost two years you've been here. Is, is that right? End of 21? Well, you're right? two, and a, two and a half, if you will. We arrived in September, so that was still COVID times. We had two weeks of MIQ in, in Auckland. But after that, when I was able to come down to, to travel to, to Wellington, I just realized that life was much, much, much freer here in, in Wellington and the rest of the part of New Zealand than in Europe and and the United States. Of course, in Oakland, there were these big lockdowns, but diplomatically, when it comes to our profession, we were completely free and we were able to interact with each other and all the ministries. So it was a very good change. 
What have been some of the observations that you've seen having moved from the United States to New Zealand and seeing both these English-speaking Western democracies under multiple presidencies in the US? I mean, do you, do you see greater similarities or are there quite distinctive dis- differences? Between the two countries, look, it's kind of dangerous, choppy waters. I cannot really comment on internal politics and foreign policies of any of these two countries. So let me try to stick to the personal. I have to tell you that after spending so many years in the United States, it was very easy to settle in New Zealand. Okay, When it comes to culture, when it comes to people's being easygoing, friendly, approachable. I didn't really find too much of a difference. Uh, Of course, it helps if you can find the same food staple, the the same food items here in New Zealand that you find in the United States. Uh, Family was happy with that too. But all in all, I have to tell you that the two societies are, I would say, very similar. If I can say a word, uh, not in my capacity as an ambassador, but as, let's say, my personal capacity, I think that the big difference here in New Zealand compared to the United States that your society and your political parties are still able to discuss things with each other people with each other and so on and so on. So uh, I think that uh, New Zealand is lucky in the sense that the level of divisiveness that time to time we see in the United States is not really present here. And I really hope that you will be able to keep it this way. Mm, So do we. So do we, considering uh, at the moment we've got three of them trying to hash out an agreement for a new government. So very much so. So Hungary, of course, is a country that's fascinating because you politically have been on a tremendous journey over the last 30 years. It's, you know, (laughs) it's still a, I mean, in my living memory, you know, you've gone from communism to socialism and inverted commas. You know, run me through some of the things that, particularly now that Hungary is doing, that it makes Mm -hmm. it quite an outlier with Central European nations? Mm -hmm. Well, there is a lot to unpack here, if you will. So if you don't mind, I will have to go back a little bit in history, like 1,100 years, if you don't mind. (laughs) (laughs) But I will be quick. This is important to understand where we are and, and what we are doing. Of course, you have kind of alluded to the fact that before the regime change in 1989, we were part of the communist bloc, the socialist bloc, right? And a lot of New Zealanders, when they hear about Hungary, when they talk about Hungary, they would relate to that period. They would understand that period. They were living through that period. And of course, this is how we understand the word. Uh, It's easier for us to think about things that we lived through. But it is only a very short period for Hungary. This is how we consider it. So basically, one of the similarities between the two countries, New Zealand and Hungary, is that the Hungarian tribes arrived to the Carpathian Basin around the same time when the first Wakas arrived to New Zealand. So 895, uh, when we arrived to the Carpathian Basin. And uh, at that time, we had, we had seven tribes. So there were seven Hungarian tribes arriving uh, to where Hungary is now. And these tribes were pagan. There were a couple of visionary leaders. Uh, our first king, King Stephen, who became our patron saint later, he decided, and his father actually decided, to convert us to Christianity. 
And this is how we became a Christian country around the end of the first millennia. And why is that important? Because those kind of Judeo-Christian values ticked with us. Okay, Central Europe, you talked about Central Europe, it's a tough place to survive and thrive for 1100 years. So you have to have values and principles pretty strong. And of course, I mean, I don't want to go through the, go through the whole history, but the fact is that Hungary has been occupied several times throughout its history. Uh, the Mongols came twice, uh, then the Turks occupied Hungary for 150 years. We had this kind of asymmetrical relationship with the Austro within the Austro-Hungarian monarchy, and then, of course, the 40-plus years of communism. And I can tell you that throughout those years and sometimes decades or centuries of occupation, these kind of Judeo-Christian values and principles that kept us alive. And whenever we were free, we belonged to the West. We always went back to these values and principles. And it's interesting that you mentioned the Central European countries because the Central European countries shared the same faith. If we talk about the so-called Visegrad Four countries, Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, and Slovakia, these countries were independent countries and then became part of the socialist bloc, right? But the interesting thing that these countries have already come together as early as 305. There were kings, the Polish king, the Hungarian king, and the Czech king came together. And this they, they kind of put together this uh, Visegrad alliance, as we, we call it. And of course, after the regime change, these countries revived, the four countries revived this Visegrad alliance with the ultimate goal to get into NATO and European Union. And you can tell that this alliance was and is successful because those goals have been met. Now, what happened during those 40 years, 40 plus years uh, during the communist system, our independence, our liberty, self-determination was taken away, right? So those issues are always more important for countries and nations that have lost those values time to time. And, and this is why you have seen not only Hungary, but all these Central European countries being a little bit more conservative, trying to get back, uh, trying to build back what they have lost during those 45 years. And I think many of the traits that you see when it comes to Hungary, the conservatism, the emphasis on family, on family values, on religion, on nationhood, comes from that reason, comes because of that reason. And, and why do I say that? It's an interesting thing. It's not only about self-determination and sovereignty, but also it's about... Uh, kind of social experiment, or if you will, a socialist experiment. During the communist rule, that was the first time when we felt that the political powers want to ensure that the importance of nations, the importance of national identity declines, and instead of that comes the so-called socialist principle, where your nationality is not as important as the the principle, the cause, the, the cause of socialism, the cause of communism, right? And we live happily ever after under a centralized rule that was at that time Moscow. 
Frankly speaking, we tried it for 40 plus years, and we do understand that this is a dead end. It is a, a societal, economic, political dead end. You don't go there. I mean, we have tried it. We have done that. It's not workable. Okay. During the same 40 plus years, the West, that was the traditional founding fathers of the European Union, in the same time, they have become much less conservative, right? This is what we have seen. In the 90s, when we started our uh, journey towards the European Union, I think the understanding of the founding fathers were, was that these newcomers, these countries coming out of socialism, would uh, somehow do a time travel and join them in this less conservative, more centralized idea. And I think that was a great misunderstanding on both sides. Uh, uh, Hungary and these other countries were not ready to do that. They were just got out of an abusive system, which was communism. They wanted to rebuild their own national identity. They want to relieve that or that national identity. Conservative values were again cherished, right? Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we have seen those values being put on the back burner in some of the Western countries. Okay. Do Hungarians from that time, do they look at the march, particularly in nations such as France, Germany, and to a lesser extent, the United States, and even down here in New Zealand, do they do they sit back? And I know some people from former communist bloc countries, and they say to me, they look back and they say, we've been here before, we've danced this dance before. So they yes. recognise they recognize the behaviours for what they actually are, which is sort of socialism and communism dressed up into a different costume with different names. Marie, that is a very excellent point. And indeed, I was baffled. I think I can use that word. I was baffled when I saw that, for example, communism is much respected in universities. And there are these groups who would advocate for that in the United States and so on and so on. And I always wanted to cry out that, please don't. Uh, please don't. Uh, this this system is responsible for so many deaths. Uh, this system is responsible for so many injured uh, lives and crises in society and so on and so on. You should learn your lesson from others' mistakes. If you take a look at what happened during communism, we were put into this block not by a Hungarian referendum, right? This was decided by a couple of conferences including Yalta and Potsdam. So this is how we became part of uh, the communist system. And people should have realized, I mean, the, the free word, if you will, should have realized that there is a problem with this system. When first Hungary stood up in 56, 1956 with the Hungarian revolution and freedom fight, then when the, the Czechoslovakian at that time, this is how we call them, the Czechoslovakian people rose in 68. And then, of course, the Solidarność movement in Poland, starting from the 80s, right? They should have seen it that, look, there is a major problem with the system. And there is a major problem with a system that tries to take away nationality, national identity, and tries to substitute it with something else. I think that this is a lesson that we learn the hard way, and we <laughs> really hope that, that other people will learn it the easy way. Now, when it comes to principles like open society and the, the liberal thinking that puts less emphasis on nations, 
when we are more cautious about those uh, those ideas like migration tinkering with the, the traditional values related to family and so on and so on. I think most of our misgivings come from that socialist era that we lived through. We have seen similar ideas and we know that that does not work. So when we talk about the different ideas about migration, the different ideas about the future of Europe, this kind of historical lesson, this kind of historical background that I have explained to you, it gives the background for our position. At this moment, if I may say that, I think at this moment, Europe is at crossroads. And there are two issues that are actually interrelated. One is what kind of Europe do we want? And of course, some of the ideas are that we we would, since there is a crisis and Europe is ineffective, we want to cede more powers to some kind of a centralized structure, right? This is about the federalism versus sovereignty debate. And then you have another debate, which is to a, to a certain extent related, and, and that is about the principles and values, the liberalism versus conservatism debate. And, you know, with regard to the first one, we have already talked about it, I think that it is very clear that uh, most of the newcomer countries, the countries that joined the European Union after 1990, the 10 newcomer countries have their own misgivings with regard to giving more power to a centralized uh, countries. And I cannot talk about, I, I cannot talk on, the, on behalf of them, but I can talk about on behalf of Hungary. The Hungarian position is very clear. There is a very good division of labor between the European Union and the nation states, and we don't want to cede more powers to the European Union. We think Hungary, the Hungarian government, thinks that strong nations make the European Union stronger. So this is one of the, the issues. And of course, the, the other issue that we have talked about is the relativization of certain values related to religion, conservatism, conservatism and family and, and gender and so on and so on. We, we can also talk about that. And of course, migration, uh, I am coming back to this issue time to time, which is also a big sticking point between different European uh, nations, a big well, point of so contention. Let's, let's look at migration and immigration. Unlike many nations within Europe, you do actually have a rigid border. Uh, yes and no, if you will. It's a very interesting approach that you are coming from. Why do I say that? Because it's very intriguing. At least I find it intriguing, hopefully listeners too. Uh, let's talk a little bit about migration and then let's talk about borders. With regard to migration, again, there is this big difference between a couple of countries in Europe. Some of the Western countries, our Western friends, think that they do know that they have a, a problem with an aging society. They have no workforce no people to pay for pension and so on and so on. So they think that migration could be an answer to that. And in principle, I think it's uh, it's an idea. In principle, it might work. As far as Hungary is concerned, we don't believe in that. And the reason is that we have seen countries that are much more capable, they have more capacity, they are richer than Hungary, grappling with this problem, uh, meaning that they were not really successful in integrating people who migrated to these host countries. 
And instead of solving problems, they have actually created another set of problems, including uh, issues related to safety, issues related to, you know, the emergence of parallel societies, societal tension, if you will. At a certain time, at a certain level, migration, at least this is what Hungary believes in, can change the societal setup of uh, a country can change the, the values and the principles that we believe in and that we think that kind of kept us safe in the last 1100 years. Having said that, let me just touch upon this. We also have the same problem. I mean, Hungary also has an aging society, right? Basically, the Hungarian government does not believe that migration is an answer to, to those societal questions. Uh, we also have in Hungary the same problems that uh, the Western society has, which is declining uh, population, low fertility rate. And we found another answer to those problems, which is better family policy. So we don't think that we should kind of import the problems uh, that come with migration, but we could start a set of policies, if you will, a complex set of policies that would make sure that in Hungary, the fertility rate goes up, families are supported. Uh, the question of whether or not to bear a child is not a financial issue anymore. And this is what we are doing. We are spending, the Hungarian government uh, has spent more than 5% of the GDP. Uh, Which is a sig significantly more than your defense budget. Is well, that is correct. That is correct. Our defense budget is more than 2% at this moment, but we think that making sure that we have a nation to defend is also important. And the only way you can make sure that you have a nation that you want to protect is to have uh, enough children and the next generation and the next generation. So, of course, I mean, our fertility rate was abysmal. We had 1.2% 10 years ago. We are at one6 at this moment. It is doable. I mean, it's still not the ideal 2.2 uh, that we would like to achieve, but we see a very good trend. And we see not only the fertility rate going up, but also divorces going down, marriages, the number of marriages going up. And we also see the number of abortions declining significantly. We have not changed, by the way, we have not changed the rules on abortions. And we still have a relatively relaxed abortion uh, regulation. So it's not, that is not the reason for the, for the decline of the number of abortions. The reason is that this uh, family policy, this comprehensive family policy has kicked in and it seems to be working. Of course, after COVID and with the war in our neighborhood in Ukraine, the numbers are, you know, sliding again. But we do hope that, that these numbers are, the slide is, is temporary and we can go back to this kind well, of Well, I just wanted to cover for our listeners a few things on that. So in that family huh. policy, um, the numbers I've got here, 5.5% of GDP, more, um, more than three times of what you currently spend on your military budget. What's interesting about your family policy is that it's allotted a generous financial benefits, including two years of maternity leave and childcare allowances for working mothers that choose to stay at home with their children before they enter school. Married couples who start a family also qualify for low fixed mortgage rates and other benefits. But this was the one that really interested me is that mothers who have four or more children earn themselves a lifetime exemption from paying tax. <laughs> that is true. You have not mentioned, but there is another interesting piece of 
tax uh, allowance, which is related to the younger generation. So people who work until the age of 25, they don't have to pay taxes. Wow. So that, that really is- encourages them to stay within within Hungary then, doesn't it? Except because in this country, most young people will work or get degrees. And then those first few years, they often travel and leave New Zealand at that time. Whereas yes. that would encourage young Hungarians to stay and establish themselves. Well, this is the idea, exactly. So uh, the idea is that, you know, when you start your career, you are not a top earner, Right but you have your needs and those needs actually surpass the needs of the older generation. You want to have a house, you want to establish a family, you want to have kids and so on and so on. So the best way to ensure that is that if you earn a certain amount of money, the government, the, the, the state is not taking it away, right? Mm-hmm. So this is, this is something, but also there are a lot of non-monetary incentives. I mean, yes, last year alone, the couples and families were able to retain 5 billion New Zealand dollars through these tax allowances and everything else. But then, of course, the other set of these incentives and measures are not financial, meaning that, for example, we have a very flexible system with regard to who goes on uh, uh, to maternity care. So actually, it, if, if the mother wants to continue working, it could be the father who would take a leave and get a certain amount of money by taking care of the the newborn. But then we went one step further. So actually now it's uh, also the the grandfather and the grandmother who could go for this option and could take care of the kids, uh, get a certain amount of money for that by supporting the family. So the idea was that we create a very flexible system Uh, For mothers who want to stay at home, they could stay at home. For mothers who want to go back to work, they can go back to work. Make sure that the burden is not higher, the burden is not heavier than it is necessary. Of course, it's always a a burden to have kids, but the idea is that it should be rewarded uh, by, by the state, and this is what Uh, the government is trying to do. Yes, but by bringing the grandparents into play, it also means that you are having children raised by their families. Right. And not sort of passed out to the state and to childcare while the parents are working. Yes. So Mary, this is correct. Uh, This is one of the ideas, keeping the kids, having them in the family. But having said that, the government also realised that we have a problem with the capacity of childcare facilities. So we actually, the government actually stepped up in that regard to uh, they are building kindergartens in a way that would create that opportunity for people who do not necessarily have grandparents or other uh, family type solutions for, for the kids, but also want to go back to work. Yeah. So the tax rate too, I, under, you, I understand you've got a, is it a flat tax rate? Oh, it is. It's 15%. One five. One five, 15 percent. I see I, I'm seeing people buying plane tickets already, John, from here. So how does that go in terms of being able to fund all of this? Because surely, you know, a lot of these social policies don't come cheap. So how do you right. balance the fiscal responsibility from a federal level and you know making sure that you've got that income that to come in and cover all of this? Yes, that is a very good point. Back in the old days, Hungary had a major problem with the so-called grey economy, meaning that, well, first of all, a lot of people didn't work. And secondly, if they worked, they were semi-legally, let me put it this way. 
one of the ideas of this government was that we want to make sure that the taxpayer base is widened. And this is what is happening now. Never, ever uh, so many people worked in Hungary than now. So, and of course, if you have a wider taxpayer base, you can allow to cut the level of the tax or the, the percentage of the tax. And this is how it is working, actually, at this moment. If you take a look at Hungary's debt level, the European Union principle is that we should be under 60%, right? And uh, the government started with 80-some percent. We were cutting, cutting, cutting. Then, of course, COVID came, and now the Ukrainian-Russian war uh, came. So now the debt uh, ratio to, compared to the GDP is going up a little bit. But we keep this downward trajectory. And this means, and this is very important also for European Union purposes and the unity of the European Union, we are able to give this support to the families and we are able to work on our fertility rate while also working on our debt ratio and reduce our debt ratio. The plan is, even with uh, Russia's war against Ukraine and even with the related disruptions in uh, economic uh, terms, we hope to achieve that 60% by 2030. What sort of headwinds are you getting with the conflict between Russia and Ukraine? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, some of my New Zealand friends talked about the inflation here, which is around 7%, if I am not mistaken. And of course, you have a little bit higher percentage when it comes to foodstuffs and these kind of things. Now, our inflation rate is 22%. So try that. Okay. We have been there and done that. I do remember <laughs> when I was much younger, it was uh, floating around there somewhere in the right. days. Yeah. Right. So we, we are working on that too. It is coming down, but not as quickly as or not as fast as we hoped for. It is very clear that, again, half of Europe is distancing itself from another part of the continent. Of course, the trading systems are again collapsing. And we think that there is a legitimate potential for uh, building up some kind of a, a Berlin Wall again, some okay. kind of a, a wall between parts of uh, the continent, which is which is definitely definitely not the direction that we want to move. This is reality. So uh, at this moment, uh, you see a lot of problems with uh, production lines and production chains people trying to find and factories trying to find uh, another uh, uh, source for whatever ingredients they need. You would believe that it could have an effect on uh, foreign direct investment since we are close to, well, it seems to be close to the conflict, uh, which is not the case because the conflict is raging like more than 1,000 kilometers from us. But anyway, foreign direct investment did not take a hit. So in 2002, in 2003, we had record years with regard to foreign direct investment. We don't see a problem there. And this is why we think that uh, we are able to get out of this momentary slump, if you will. Our unemployment ratio has not gone up. It's still around 3.9%. I think the two countries are at similar yeah, we're, we're, we're creeping up. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a, a, li a little, little bit of creeping in, also in Hungary. But all in all, uh, the economy is, is, is pretty robust. Uh, of course, 
uh, we are an open market economy like New Zealand. So we rely on the health, I mean, the economic health of our partners. Uh, there is a saying in Hungary that if Germany sneezes, then we, I mean, Hungary catch cold. is catch cold. That's right. At this moment, the German economy has its own problems. Uh, of course, also related to gas prices, oil prices, and the source issue. Yes, we are in the same ship, uh, and we hope that all these other countries are making progress, and therefore it would have a beneficial effect on the so, Hungarian So economy. what is driving that inflation rate in Hungary then? It's mostly uh, the energy prices. Oh, that is the right. So what happened, the energy prices, there were a certain time when it was like more than 100% plus, and, you know, you need energy for everything, moving things around, baking the bread, whatnot. I don't have to explain it. Energy is such an instrumental part of all of our economies. If we have a major problem with the prices there, it immediately translates to higher inflation everywhere mm. and higher prices everywhere. That is the biggest issue. We don't see the end of that crisis at this moment. Actually, we might have some further difficulties, not only in Hungary, but in Europe, especially in the landlocked countries like Hungary, because we don't have ability to get these things through ports and so on and so on. But I am sure that we will be able to solve it. So mm. the, the, the situation is not as tragic as it seemed to be at the beginning of the conflict. Mm. Now, we skirted around the borders earlier on. The borders, yes. yes. <laughs> I'm not going to let that one go because I, no, no. I do find this quite fascinating because, let's face it, there is another conflict going on and that conflict is also not only being played out in the Middle East, but I really do have a concern that that conflict is going to spill over into Europe because mm. of the very free immigration and movement into Europe um, yes. Yes. over the last sort of 10 years, especially. Hungary has made sure that the integrity of their borders has remained strong. Indeed, but uh, there is an interesting explanation for that. Let me give it a try. It will sound legalistic, but it's very interesting. As you know, within the European Union, there is an inner circle, which we call the Schengen area. And countries within the Schengen area, they don't have border crossings uh, on their borders within the Schengen area, right? So if there is a New Zealander coming to Berlin and decides to visit Hungary, he or she would jump up on a plane in Berlin, arrive to Budapest in two hours, and then he or she does not have to take out his or her passport, right? There is no border control. It basically functions like one country within the Schengen internal area. And it's extremely important because this is the, the whole idea of the European Union, that you have free movement of goods, free movement of people, and free movement of services. Now, in order to maintain that free movement within the Schengen area, there is a responsibility on the countries that have external Schengen borders to keep the external borders controlled, under control, right? So basically, unless you know who gets into the European Union, you cannot 
maintain this kind of free movement of goods, persons, and services. This is the crux of it. And of course, Hungary, on the southern border, have a couple of countries that are not part of the European Union, namely Serbia and Romania, for example. And of course, we are responsible by European Union law to maintain order on those borders. Now, for 20, 25 years, the European Union had this presumption that since the border crossings are open, nobody in her in his or her right mind would come through the green borders, right? Why would they? That presumption, if you will, uh, went up in flames in 2015 when half million migrants trampled through Hungary into uh, the European Union. So, of course, I mean, based on the European Union regulations, the only uh, thing that we were able to do and we were mandated to do is to secure the green borders. And this is why we have built uh, the fence on the green border with these countries on our external Schengen area. Of course, we are getting a lot of criticism for that, <laughs> which is paradoxical. But I am just making this point to, to mm -hmm. make New Zealanders understand that we are actually doing it in order to fulfill one of our European Union obligations. I wouldn't feel bad about that. I even think Biden is thinking of building a fence now. No, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so. Look, it's amazing. It's amazing what millions just flooding across that border will do, won't it, to just solidify things up. Yeah. Right. And, and and you know, they, they also have their own problem with 12 million people and, and, and the number of grow, number is growing. Of course, you are right. But I think also the the notion or the, the approach is slightly and slowly changing in Europe. A lot of people started to understand that this social experiment is not the best one. You cannot have people come into your country without any kind of regulation and then solve the problem. This is what we discussed that uh, already 20, 25 years ago, we have seen an issue in countries, I don't want to name names, in, in some Western countries, where uh, it was very clear for us that they cannot integrate the influx of uh, migrants. They have major problems uh, and they are much, as I have said, much richer and they have much more capacity than in, than in Hungary. We have already seen at that time that this is not the, the road that we want to take, so to speak, and we have to find some alternative uh, uh, solutions. Now, we have a problem within the European Union that we have to find some kind of a, a modus operandi, some kind of a, a compromise around this. And I, I can tell you, Marie, that there were a couple of cases when the European Union was able to create those kind of compromises. One was, for example, the Eurozone, when you have a couple of countries who felt that they are prepared for a common currency, right? And there are some other countries who think that they still need some time to get into the Eurozone. And it worked out pretty well. That is the same with... Uh, just to touch on another issue that might be interesting for New Zealanders, a nuclear policy. Uh, I'm not talking about the military use of uh, nuclear energy, I'm talking about the civilian use. Right, exactly. Some of the European Union countries, they expressly denied the opportunity, like New Zealand, to have any kind of uh, any kind of nuclear power generation. And there are a couple of other countries who think that in order to become carbon neutral, in order to fight climate change and so on and so on, you have to have nuclear in your energy mix. And there you, I mean, the European Union also found some, some kind of a, a compromise. 
And, and this is my fervent hope that when it comes to migration, the European Union will, will again find some kind of a compromise where we let countries who want to go down uh, with this social experiment and continue the social experiment to continue that while they don't necessarily uh, force that position on us. And this is the important thing. We don't have any problem with other countries trying to find a solution for their own societal problems, but we don't want to follow suit and we don't want to be forced to follow suit. And another issue which is closer to values, and of course you have this issue coming up uh, more frequently, is sexual education and gender issues. There again, there are a couple of countries that are more progressive than Hungary, including New Zealand, where you have the ability to have same-sex marriages, right? We have no problem with it. I mean, please do so. If this is what your voters want, if this is what your society wants, please do that. that. But we also want to keep our freedom to decide uh, on these issues on our own. So, for example, in Hungary, uh, our constitution actually says that a marriage is between a man and a woman. And a mother is a, a woman and the father is a man. This is in our constitution. So I don't really see the European Union role in this area. But of course, there is this growing debate in that sense. Now we have been taken to court, the European Union's court, because of our law that prohibits sexual and gender education in schools. How would they then have the authority to be able to do that? Surely that fits within your own sovereignty of Hungary. That's that's a very good question. And, and this is how we feel about it. And, you know, the whole debate is a little bit contorted, if you will. We have the understanding, and I think this is the same here in New Zealand, that certain programs, for example, in TVs or in TV shows or, or in radio that are not age-appropriate, Right. You basically just don't broadcast them during daytime. So if we have that understanding, why on earth we cannot accept the fact that school is not the place to have, for the same age people, school is not the place to have uh, this kind of sexual and gender education. And, you know, here again, the conservative values, of course, I understand that New Zealand thinks about it a little bit differently. We think that it is the role of the family to take care of these very sensitive and very personal issues. And it's not the role of the school to get into gender education and sexual education. The European Commission uh, started this lawsuit uh, against Hungary, which is perfectly fine. Uh, Let me say this, uh, because I think about the European Union as a club, where if I am a club member, there is a certain requirement with regard to how I behave. And if the club thinks that I somehow violated the rules and regulations, there should be some kind of a board that would adjudicate uh, these kind of situations. So that's quite fine. I will come back to the sovereignty issue because that is interesting. Uh, The interesting phenomenon that we have seen that when this lawsuit started, 15 European Union countries joined the lawsuit against Hungary. And there was a big, it was big news. It was everywhere that 15 European Union countries joined the lawsuit against Hungary, thereby assumption, Hungary should should be wrong, right? And other 12 countries did not join the lawsuit. (laughs) That, 
you know, that already should say something about this. But then uh, the other issue is why on earth countries gang up on another country? If there is already a, a legal case, which will be adjudicated, right? And which will be decided through the necessary procedures, how does it help develop any kind of European Union unity? I mean, we have this wonderful saying in Europe, it's the motto of the European Union, that it's unity by diversity, right? So it seems to me that this motto does not necessarily work in this case. It's uh, not really unity by diversity, but it's my way or the highway, which is a de definitely a different concept. Well, and you course, sort of left that 30 years ago, so why would you want to go back to it now? That's, that's a very good point. Uh, that's a very good point. It's, it's amazing that you have said that. The first time when I felt that something is wrong, personally, was at the time of Brexit, when already Brexit should have been a warning shot. You see one of the richest, more capable European country, Great Britain, thinking that it would be better off outside of the European Union, right? So that should be a major warning shot that would be the time when people should take two steps back and take a deep breath and, and see what we have done mm -hmm. and how we move forward. Uh, and it didn't happen. Actually, what, what happened was the contrary. We have seen an even higher urge to centralize things, which is, I think, not the best answer to, to these, kind of, these kind of things. Uh, coming back to the sovereignty issue, you are right. We don't think that the European Union has anything to legislate in this area. These issues are about the societal values. These issues are about the future of your nation, right? And this should be under your purview or in your purview to decide on. Now, intriguingly, this lawsuit has been brought against us based on the uh, some kind of a violation of of the free movement of services, which I, I have not yet understood. I, I have not yet <laughs> wrapped my head around it. But of course, look, we will we will answer the, the, the charges and we will try to find a solution in this regard. But coming back to your excellent point, yes, it doesn't feel like a club. It doesn't feel like a club. It, sometimes it feels that it's more like uh, the system that we have uh, that we have left behind. More importantly, issues like migration, issues like family policy, issues like education, gender. By the way, education is firmly in the purview of the national, <laughs> the national jurisdiction. So these issues are not legal issues. These issues are the most important issues with regard to the, the, the future of the European Union. So I, I don't think personally that these issues can be solved in courts. They will have to be solved. We have to get together within the European Union, but not by bringing countries in front of courts. The, the irony that I have, though, is that you look at, because you've also, we haven't even gotten on to the universities yet, because your prime minister came back for a second set of terms right. with a supermajority. He put his big boy pants on and he was had quite a radical change and re, you know rewrote your constitution and looked at all those values that yes 
that the people felt that they wanted restored in their own country. I mean, in a way, it was your own Brexit internally, wasn't it? It was your nationhood saying, this is who we are, this is who we want to be, and your Prime Minister led with that and sort of got rid of the last vestiges of that communist and then socialist regime and set about restoring Hungarian nationhood and sovereignty. This is my sort of bird's eye view looking from what I've read. You know, you're starting to get really good successes. Surely somebody like Ursula von der Leyen should be on the phone going, yo, Victor, stuff seems to be working over there. What are you doing in Hungary that we should be looking at here in the European Union? And yet they just seem to be doubling down on their social experiment. Interesting points that you are raising. Uh, Coming back to your choice of words, Brexit, I have to emphasize that we are the biggest fans of the European Union. Whether we have debates with regard to the future of the European Union and how we want to see it shaped, it's a different matter. We have very strong viewpoints on that. Uh, Having said that, we really want to stay within the European Union, and we really want to see the European Union being successful. Because if the European Union is successful, we are also successful. Uh, there is basically no alternative for a 450 million market. It's just an enormous power uh, that a country of 10 million would never have. So this is why we say that, uh, yes, we would like to, uh, we would like to uh, see the European Union uh, succeed. When it comes to asserting our sovereignty, you are right. We really, I mean, this Hungarian government at this moment really thinks that the Lisbon Treaty uh, creates a very clear division of labor between national jurisdictions, mixed jurisdictions, and European Union jurisdictions, and we are happy to work with that. We don't want to see more powers ceded to uh, Europe. We don't want to see the further federalization of the European Union partially because of the fact that we don't think that it is a viable alternative. This is a viable vision with countries that have so many different characteristics. I talked about the Central European countries having a completely different set of ideas than the Western countries and so on and so on. I think what the Orban government realized was that actually the the voters of the different European Union countries are getting less and less comfortable with how the European Union works, okay? And of course, one of the, one of the glaring examples was Brexit. But as I have said, I have spent too much time in the United States. Uh, there is a wonderful research institute that deals with uh, European Union issues, an American research institute. It's called Pew Research Center. And a couple of years ago, they have uh, had a I would say a groundbreaking uh, uh, study on popular sentiments with regard to Europe. And of course, I don't have time to to talk about it in detail, but basically they started to talk about so-called double disconnect. So basically what the Research Institute was talking about was that due to a couple of factors, like how the European Union handled the financial crisis in 2008 and after that, and also the migration crisis in 2016 and after, they were less and less confident in the fact that the European Union organizations are serving them, which would be their task. And then, this is the double disconnect, they also felt that their own government is not really doing its job, within the European Union and also protecting them 
when they need some kind of a protection. And I think this is what the Orban government understood, that as long as you are within the boundaries of the club, if you will, if you play with, within the rules, you still should have the ability and maneuvering room and the national jurisdiction to stand up for values and principles that you believe in. And you should be able to get respect and acceptance if you are also accepting the other countries' different point of views. And I think this is what the Urban government wants to achieve within the European Union. Uh, this is the balance that we would like to see. And as I have said many, many times, the European Union was the strongest when they had some kind of a unified decision, some kind of a compromise, and then let the countries do their own implementing jobs and, and so on and so on. This is what we are hoping for. And I think this is what is the uniqueness of the Orban government uh, at this moment. The government really believes in these values and principles, and definitely it is not shy to, to make it known. Yeah. Uh, again, we, I think we don't want to be, you know, revolutionaries or torchbearers or whatnot, uh, if, if people like talking about Urs Ursula von Leiden, if some of the countries would like to take a look at what we do with regard to family policy, what we do with regard to supporting schools, education, independent education, and so on and so on, we are very happy to sit down and converse with them and enter into a discussion. We don't want them necessarily to follow us, okay? We don't want them to change their constitution and make sure that marriage is only between a man and a woman. The only thing that we want is that our position is also respected. Yeah. And I think that is the important thing. And now, sort of in a way that's, I mean, we could keep talking for hours, but I know that we have limited time. But that in a way also brings it back full circle now to New Zealand, because here we are, you are the ambassador here, we're about to, we are rotating government, so you'll get a whole new set of politicians to break in, Jolt. Are those are the sorts of conversations that you have with those in governance in New Zealand? You share your experiences uh, that you have within Hungary, and then they sort of shared their experiences here in New Zealand, and it, and it's a sharing of ideas and sort of planning and experiences to actually help both strengthen both nations as a whole, sort of like a combined learning experience? Uh, yes and no, if you will. Uh, I am always happy to talk about the Hungarian policies when I am asked, especially when there are some questions about the validity of those principles and policies and so on and so on. And I am eager to share uh, these ideas when I am asked. Okay, But frankly speaking, we have a, a plethora of, of other issues that we have to tackle. Uh, these are actually opportunities, which is just fascinating. Uh, just to give you a couple of examples, as you know, New Zealand and the European Union has entered into this free trade agreement. It will come into force next year, hopefully the first half of next year. Uh, New Zealand just joined the Horizon Europe program, which is the biggest research and development program on earth, mm -hmm. uh, uh, administered mm -hmm. by the European Union. And you also put together the so-called New Zealand leg or the New Zealand pillar of the Enterprise uh, Europe network. So companies from both countries will have a matchmaking mechanism 
uh, to come together. And on my side, on a bilateral level, uh, we will have the 50th anniversary of the establishment of our diplomatic relations uh, in 2024. And also Hungary will have the European Union presidency in the second half of uh, 2024, an interesting year. So we really hope that when it comes to economy, trade, uh, foreign direct investment, university cooperation, research and development cooperation, we can take this relationship to a new level. And this is what I am working on. This is the focus of my work. So basically, uh, these kind of discussions uh, that we are having right now, for example, with you, is me stepping out of the treadmill, if you will. Yeah. Uh, 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 kind of the, the, the interesting discussions uh, where I can speak a little bit uh, freer on subjects that do not necessarily come up when I talk to ministries and colleagues in the administration. No, well, there's going to be certainly interesting times ahead. It has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for giving your time today. This has been Jolt Hedesay, the ambassador for Hungary. If anyone wants to find more information around some of the stuff that we've talked about today, or what are like in terms of resources about Hungary, I've got this excellent article that was written by Christopher Rufo, which I used, um, which we will make sure that we have available for people if they want to download that. Is there anywhere else that you suggest that they look in terms of sort of doing their own research to if they want to visit Hungary or they want to know a little bit more about what goes on there from a day-to-day basis? Oh, yes, and thank you very much for this opportunity to have a little bit of a shout-out. Shout I always say that if you want to get the facts about Hungary, you might want to go to the source. So we have a homepage that is very simple. It's called About Hungary. If you want to see what the government is doing and uh, why it is doing what it is doing, uh, that is one of the best uh, homepage that I can offer. And the other is, of course, as we had talked about it, we have open border crossings. Uh, we would be happy to have more New Zealand uh, tourists and people who do business in Hungary. If you want to get a general idea of it, regard to what you can do and, and how you can do it, there is another very important uh, homepage. The link is Visit Hungary. So about Hungary and visit Hungary. If you want to get kind of unfiltered facts about Hungary, please use those. Thank you so much. And Marie, thank you very much. It has been a treat uh, being with you. Oh, it has been a wonderful treat to be with you as well. This is Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. Don't disappear. More great content still here to come. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. It's getting to that time to start thinking about Christmas. And at RCR, we've got great merch options that are growing from pens to mouse pads, clothing to coffee cups, bumper stickers to bags, and the very popular fence signs. Well, why don't you treat yourself to a subscription to our Foundation Members Club? Just go to the website at realitycheck.radio. Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing, and the app is now live. You can visit the App Stores direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything, from listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews, and checking out the latest blogs all from the very same app. So get listening. 
and download the RCR app now. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I am Marie and I'm joined as always by Marty Gibson. Good morning, Marty. Morning, Marie. How are you doing? I'm good. Interesting theme this week in the paper, largely due to the fact that there was very, very little in the paper. I think, yeah. I think the sheep are actually running out of things to, to say and do. It's nothing you didn't know, is it, when you when you read these things. I read Claire Travitt's whole thing and I couldn't underline anything because it's just like, well, yeah, I know that. I know that same with Mike Hosking's sort of having mm. a crack at it. I mean, Claire Travitt said, for National, the most concerning area will be around its tax cuts promise, something both ACT and New Zealand First have reservations about. It has already been a sticking point in the talks and is problematic for National because it's a bottom-line promise. The issues are not so much around the tax cuts as the timing scale and the way National intends to pay for them. And as I've said before, I think there's no, I don't think they can compromise on the foreign buyers tax or the tax cuts. As I said, I think the foreign ban on foreign buyers, lifting that, is basically a way to allow toilet paper American Federal Reserve money to inflate New Zealand's economy. And I, and I do question the appetite for tax cuts of that sort. You know, I mean... As we've said before, you know, it's saying best case scenario, people are going to get what two hundred bucks a fortnight. The average mortgage in New Zealand, let's remember, has gone up by a thousand dollars a month. So, I mean, it, it might help, but I think uh, eventually we've got to talk about the elephant in the room, which are the bankers. Mm. And they've been uh, releasing record profits. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, if you think their profits are record now, you you wait till they. Uh, Start turning their fake money into real real estate and jacking up the uh, the price uh, on borrowing money that's worth less. Here's <laughs> the interesting thing: I, I did hear a stat yesterday, and it was around. I think there was um, one of the surveys had just been released. Anyway, the, out of the, a million mortgage holders, I think in New Zealand, it was something along the lines that only two thousand were at that point where they were at extreme hardship in meeting their mortgage, which is a much, much smaller number than they were yeah. expecting. And my thought on that was, was, oh, okay, that's actually quite interesting. So what does that actually mean? Does that mean that Kiwis are actually able to rein in discretionary spending to a point to actually find that money for their mortgage, which then means if they were able to do that, why weren't they actually doing that to begin with in order to reduce their mortgage pressure well, to because begin with? The- there was a, an abundant money supply, and people with one house, I guess, tended to buy two houses that then get rented out to the people who are really struggling to pay the rent. If we look at what's happening in America, you know, you've got again the Reserve Bank, uh, the Fed chairwoman Janet Yellen saying, "Don't worry about the deficit; we can handle it." You know, and uh, the U.S. debt, uh, government debt, is around thirty-three trillion. Now, oh no, it's just um, insane. And and they're paying uh, interest on that's one trillion per annum. Debt when Trump got in was nineteen trillion, and he jacked it up to twenty six point nine trillion. So it's it's not like uh, again it's 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 not like it's a red or blue is any better. Um, Moody's has just downgraded the U.S. credit rating from stable to negative, and they've lo- lowered the median ratings of U.S. banks. So you know it's they're just blo- blowing this up. And eventually they will get the right reset. <laughs> that, that's the idea. You know, looking at the US still, the, their credit card debt was up in a quarter by 4.6%, and that's cracked over $1 trillion for the first time. They're just the, the figures are just eye-watering. Mm, um, they just? 
And, um, you know, that's the you will own nothing and be happy. Well, you know, it's the banks basically saying, well, you owe us more than your assets are worth, so give us our pound of flesh. Mm. That's what it's that, that's always at the top of the pyramid. You have to kind of keep in mind that. And those banks own the media. Those banks can, if a politician starts getting too big for their boots, they say, hey, look, we might just get our friends over at Moody's who are saying everything was all cool uh, with our weird financial weapons of mass destruction. We might just get them to downgrade your rating so your interest rates go up and then your people won't like that and you'll be turfed out. So the, the amount of control they've got on what's happening is incredible. And there was another article in the Weekend Herald about, did you read the one about the uh, all the debt that's owed by beneficiaries? Yes, I did. It wasn't the Weekend Herald, actually. Sorry, it was the Sunday Star Times. $3.5 billion, 500,000 Kiwis owe $3.5 billion to the government because they're living on the edge and then their car breaks down and they go to work at income. They say, well, you can have a loan. It's a money-go-round, they called it. So you've, you've got them living on the edge with all these loans that they have to pay back, back to the government, whilst they're going to the government with their hand out to pay for the emergency. Yeah, well, loans are getting paid off by money they're getting off the government. Yeah, it is just, I mean, insanity. It's that uh, inflationary printing money and kicking the can down the road, isn't it? Indeed. You can understand the sense of hopelessness you'd get if you're struggling to feed your kids and you owe the government $100,000. You know, why would you think, okay, right, I'm going to get a job. It's really embedding welfareism in, isn't it? Just that sense of hopelessness and that you just can't get ahead. Yeah, and because, you know, and there's oh, there, is just, there are so many dynamics at play here. And yeah, and all you're doing is creating a debt spiral and a debt trap. So, so if they are wanting to try and move themselves out of that, whether it be with work, because that's the other side of it. If you're drawing a benefit, they punish you for, for working. You know, like you can only work a certain level before your benefit is impinged. And a lot of the work that they can potentially get is either at the lower end of the income scale or it is uh, not necessarily on permanent contract and it's more casual. So then in the hassle that you have to go through to sort of get the work, then you have to stop benefits and go through. And it's not easy. I, for the very first time, had to sort of enter into the system temporarily last year. To be fair, I know that they don't want it to be too easy, but when you make it difficult not only to get into the system, but also difficult for people to transition themselves out of the system, so therefore they just decide to maintain themselves in the status quo, well, how are you go how's that good for aspiration? How's that good for driving people out of poverty by wanting to inspire to do more? Because tell it's just you what, easier I, to stay put. I know I sent it to you, I know your husband listened to it, but that um interview Cameron Slater did with John Banks was, <sighs> was really powerful, I thought, you know, and I, I didn't realize what a an awful childhood awful childhood he had and you know there was that moment when he when he said you know i know what it's like to get the shit beaten out of me because i've pissed the bed every morning you piss the bed if your adrenaline is sky high because you've been beaten i think that guy's a national treasure and then you know in a lot of his interviews he said how unappreciated he feels as an older white man 
Yeah, said that with um, Leighton Smith like a month but, or so ago. Yeah, his story is one of escaping that kind of grinding poverty. And while I was listening to that, it occurred to me, you know how there's, there's a lot of talk about, oh, we should dock beneficiaries whose kids aren't going to school. Uh, the thought occurred to me, you know what we should do is pay them more if they do go to school. We should pay them more if they do stay out of trouble, if they've been in trouble. Right, so rather than punitive, it, it's rewarding, and and again, it's it's that let's give you a bit of bit, bit of carrot rather than stick. Often, all those people have known as a stick, and it's not an excuse; it's an explanation. Well, I yeah. certainly would encourage people, if you've not heard that interview on The Crunch with Cam and John Banks, it is definitely a must-listen, even if it's just to the point that Cam's nickname was quite openly revealed by John Banks. And well, I, 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 I referred to him as Whale subsequently, said, oh, no, it's Whale. <laughs> <laughs> he did, I don't think John referred to Cam as Cam once. It was, yeah, Whale, Whale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. There's a lot of people like that. If people have got all sorts of preconceptions about, I had a, I guess I had a bit of a preconception about John Banks in, in a sense, and a lot, a lot of people do about uh, Cameron Slater. It's always worth a listen. And as mm. I've said before, it's the best political journalism in New Zealand right now, and it receives zero funding from the government. I don't and, think that's a coincidence. And I think one of the things for me with that interview too is Banks talked about aspiration. He talked about you know where he came from. He talked about um, the work he does now in terms of giving back to the community, the importance for him that faith played. Well, you and, know, the, the thing that he said that just I th- I think is the most incredible uh, thing he said. If you when when his charter school in Whangarei was operating before Chris Hipkins came in and shut it down on the first day they were in power, he said if you went into a secondary school in Whangarei and asked the principal how many of your Maori and Pacific Island children do you expect to pass school C this year? I'm sure it's called something else now. They'd say oh, about forty percent, and if you went if you went to my school and asked them, you know, what what percentage do you, do you think will pass? The principal would say, well, 96%, and I hope to get it to 100% next year. Again, this really cuts to the heart of you, you've got Māori leaders who are all ready to have protests five to ten times bigger than the Springbok tours if we start looking at the principles of the treaty, although they always conflate it and tell their um, low-information followers that it's the treaty itself, which is terrible. And I noticed even one of the editorials did that as well, which I thought was was shameful. It was disingenuous, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But they won't do that for the terrible results that kids are getting in education that dooms them to a life of being low-information and subject to the whims of leaders, mm. like the people who don't care about it. We talk often about the educational numbers and charter schools for me is other than the fact that they wanted centralised control and you had a unionised workforce that didn't want to have those outside of that workforce. And teachers unions who fund the Labour Party. Yeah, so they destroy that. The success of those charter schools for those minority groups was overwhelming absolutely overwhelming and a lot of them I know have had to bend over backwards and go through all of these hoops in order to get registration back into the system and they struggle now whether or not they're faith-based or within um, you know specialist charters like Māori and Pacifica Youth you know they really do struggle to get what to achieve what they were achieving before and also and again education and prisons 
you know, I can't see why. And again, someone, if you know this differently and this is happening and I'm not aware of it, but I just look at where we're at with that, the, the number of programs that are, have been slashed in six years in prison. So, mm. you know, we're locking them up and they're not getting the support that they need. And I'd love to see lack of education often lands these people in prison. Well, then you've got a captive audience. Let's get them tooled up with the smarts that they need to hopefully turn a corner. And that's not even happening. And we've got the facilities to do it. Takura exists. The correspondence school is there. Um, yeah. I just love to see that born. It does the the will, the desire just doesn't seem to be. Governments there. love anything that makes people demand less freedom and more government. Mm, I know. And so, you know, that that doesn't satisfy either of those criteria, educating prisoners and getting them out of the system. It doesn't satisfy either of those criteria, getting beneficiaries off benefits. No, no, it doesn't. And this has been the thing, like both the one observation that both you and I had with the papers, particularly on the weekend, is just the lack of real estate on anything reasonable mm. um, was quite discerning. But there was some really good independent stuff. And one thing that you shared with me yesterday, which uh, I agreed with you fully, and it was actually in um, Itangata. Yeah, and, and and this the six way segues into this, and it's called a corridor with David Seymour by Dale, husband, and it was interviewing David Seymour, you know, obviously through a Māori lens. It was excellent, and I'm really pleased that they published this because it showed another side of Seymour. But see, he brought up, you know, the elements of charter schools, and he brought up some really interesting points on the treaty. Well, again, it's the first time that I've seen it represented that clearly. Yeah, you've still got those editorials yeah talking about well he wants to have a referendum on the treaty and it's it's like it's it's not a referendum on the treaty it's on the principles of the treaty mm. and i think the uh the, the question was how do you feel about people who say you want to rewrite the treaty and who are angry that you want to dismantle maori initiatives including te aka Faiora, to the point of questioning your maoriness he says well, it's mainly disappointing because when people make those personal attacks and spread misinformation about my position, they're really saying they don't want to have a rational debate about the future. You might ask yourself, if you don't want to have a rational debate about the future, well, why are you in politics? The whole point of politics is that it's a meeting to exchange ideas and find a way forward. But what you've got is a group of people who, in effect, say, no, I don't want to debate the merits of your idea. I just want to attack you personally. There's something else he said. It says, you're being criticised for suggesting now that we have a referendum on the Treaty of Waitangi. What's your response? Well, a lot of critics haven't taken the time to understand what we're proposing. The treaty will never go away, and it will always say exactly what it says. What we're suggesting is simply that Parliament should define the principles of the treaty. I think Parliament should define them, and I think that everybody should be involved in signing off what they mean. That would be a positive discussion for New Zealand to have. Why would anyone oppose that? It seems to me that there are some people who are afraid to see the treaty principles being open to some sunlight because they've largely been decided behind closed doors by the courts and the Waitangi Tribunal and the public service. We just think that if five million of us have to live here under a set of rules, then we should all get to ratify those rules. That's the debate he's looking for. Mm, it's not exactly. a debate about taking the treaty away. It's not about uh, giving the claims back or anything like that, it's about these principles of the treaty that Geoffrey Palmer put in as a patch on some legislation he was writing on state-owned assets or state services. He was asked by Richard Preble 
what does that mean? He said, well, it's a great thing. It doesn't mean anything. It's just window dressing. It's meaningless. Mm. Mm. And yeah. the, the few activist judges gave it meaning. And so Willie Jackson said, oh, you know, I don't think we should, you know, be be going backwards on on these uh, these principles of the treaty that have been agreed on for decades. Well, he means since the 80s. Mm, exactly. And the other quote too is, is I think New Zealand does have to have the debate because the way the treaty is currently interpreted is increasingly divisive. And I agree with Dayman Salmon, who's from our hometown, who says that the treaty would never have required the public sector to be split down the middle and co-governed by two races. That's a 1980s corporate interpretation of what the treaty meant, whereas I think it meant that each person would have the same rights and duties as a citizen. So it's taking it back to basic principles. Yeah, there's a bit of that emerging. I mean, the other thing that was in the paper, which it, which was nine questions with Mike King. And he very much had that same, I guess, is on the same page as us in terms of, man, you know, I, I'm sick of being divided so I can be ruled. I'm sick of being pitted against people who I share so much common interest with by people who share very little common interest with me or Māori or, you know, everyday Māori who are struggling under the same interest rates being jacked up, inflation from wasteful government spending to these little in-crowds. Mike King, one of the questions was, what's one word to sum up your mood right now? And he said, hopeful. I think there's always a chance for understanding and unity. It's my hope that New Zealanders can embrace diverse opinions, find common ground, and remember the power of true community. Kia ora to that, mm. Mike. Absolutely. And it was funny, before we got started, we were talking about themes and I said to you that I really wanted to, I spoke at another Rotary meeting this week. And, uh, I asked you if you joined Rotary. <laughs> you did, yeah. Uh, somehow I don't think they'll accept my application if I were to join. After the this. incident at the weekend? Uh, it, it's so funny. So I've spoke, I mean, I've spoken to two clubs in the last few months and the first one was so different two different groups. And one was, to be fair, the first group were a bit younger, closer to my age, whereas the second group was certainly much, much older. And it was really fascinating to see where just even the difference probably in average age would have been about a decade, maybe 15 years, where you have a group of New Zealanders who are predominantly retired. They've got their lives exactly where they want them, where they they're happy, they're comfortable, they're you know living in those golden years. And the last thing they want to do is be confronted by uh, stark truths of what's going on. And uh, certainly, it was it was something that I you know really did rattle me. I had to I've had to sort of reflect on it for a couple of days. But the positive thing around that is it. It's about, and I did say to them, I said, we've got to take everything back to those basic principles. Whilst a lot of us wildly disagreed on things, and there was someone that very strongly disagreed on my point of view, let's look at those commonalities. Let's take those things back to what we all agree on, regardless of where we sit politically and ideologically. And I think that's what we're missing. That's yeah. what we're missing because that discourse is never allowed to occur. Yeah, exactly. Oh, you didn't point your finger at them, uh, use no. my slur? No, when I did I was not. Young, we had better old people. No, I didn't. And I tried, I worked very, very hard to try and stay 
quite measured because I didn't want to get angry or confrontational. Some had very good questions and probing and sort of there were gentle sort of pushbacks, but discussion, which is brilliant. That's the entire point. The talk primarily was around why Reality Check Radio was created and what I talk about in terms of culture and what is woke. And a number of them pushed back on my definition of woke, believing that they themselves were woke because like one held held very strong Christian values. So therefore, because they have those values and then have a strong moral compass in terms of social issues and community, therefore that made them woke, which is actually just delightful in its naivete. Yeah. But these are good people. These are good people. And I think they found it sort of quite confronting that when I say to them, this was created because these discussions are not happening anywhere else. And, the, and, and I know that they're not happening because of their belief and definition of what something is, right down, right down to somebody absolutely insisting that all of this woke behaviour and cancer culture certainly doesn't exist and it didn't come from the universities because that's where they preside and work and they have not experienced that themselves. Well, Bill Burr was hilarious about that. Did you see his Saturday Night Live monologue where he said it was originally about black people and you know some of the injustices they'd suffered. At least it was for about five minutes before women slipped their Gucci-booted foot over the fence and made it all about them. That's why it's important. Oh, my heated seat, my SUV. Yeah, it's um, that was it was really really interesting. And so, looking at the themes and just looking at some of the stuff that's in the paper, like you know, even the the negotiations, the coalition negotiations. I mean, the media are literally milking mice on this, and sort of like whining. There's almost this element of whining. Oh, it's taking so long, and oh, we make. Expecting their food at a certain time. The the interesting thing that I've noticed more and more is the left will characterize the right or capitalism broadly by its worst characteristics and faults, whereas they see themselves in this pristine theoretical kind of light, absolutely devoid of gulags and mass starvation and uh, thought control and oppressive sameness. One of the themes from the chat and the Q&A that I had at the at the meeting the other night was fear of free speech and having these open discussions, like a, a, a genuine fear. It's a pity because I read this um, the day after and I so wish I'd read it before I'd gone to do it. Um, and it's from Graham Adams. It was actually originally in the platform, creeds to the platform, but I picked it up on Bassett Brash and Hyde. And it's called Wakey Wakey Mainstream Media. And it says, and it opens with last week newsroom's political editor, Joe Moyer, seems surprised to discover that co-governance and its various policy manifestations aren't popular. On X, she wrote, exclusive poll. Okay, newsroom hasn't entered the poll race, but we have fascinating new data from Talbot Mills showing that people surveyed opposed Māori wards, co-governance and Māori health authority than actually supported them. For people like us who work in an independent media landscape, this is no shock whatsoever. But it strikes me that someone like Joe is going to be someone that would have been totally shocked by the election result because when you live in that media bubble, this is the echo chamber that you're now in. So it actually sort of goes on to talk about the result. 
Graham says here, the most vital lesson for a journalist to take from the Talbot Mills data should be really that they have failed miserably despite all their efforts to convince many voters that co-governance is fair, equitable and democratic. Because let's face it, they've had plenty of opportunity to tell us that because the debate on this was not found anywhere else within the mainstream at all. And then he goes on to the Public Interest Journalism Fund, which is something that I talked about at the meeting. And I talked about the Public Interest Journalism Fund and how it worked, how it did come with strings attached. And that's even before you got to the full rack rate advertising revenue that was also passed out. So therefore, I said very, very quickly, through the auspices of an emergency, you created an environment with the media where they required an economic hardship at that time to take this money from the government. And it's very, very quick that you do not want to bite the hand that feeds. I could see that that did not go down well with some people in the room. And you don't have to scratch below the surface in order to find this. This isn't a, this is hiding in plain sight. And they covered this. Moyer um, is not alone. Of course, among mainstream media journalists who happened to stumble across well-known truths belatedly or even accidentally, last month News Talk ZB's Mike Hoskins read out part of a column by political commentator Chris Trotter, the lovely Chris Trotter, and referred to the eligibility criteria governing access to the 55 million public interest journalism fund. The requirements to access the cash, including presenting the treaty as a partnership. Some of Hosking's audience seemed shocked to discover that the PIJF cash had strings attached regarding the treaty. One listener tweeted, did I hear Hosking's right this morning? As a condition of the 55 million Juno fund being paid, they have to sign up to a new interpretation of the Treaty of Waitangi. Please tell me I got this wrong so I can delete the tweet. No, you haven't gotten it wrong and it's not just the treaty. Yeah, it wasn't just the treaty. It was they had to characterise New Zealand as a systemically racist uh, country that disadvantages Māori. And as Jacinda Price said, you know, the voice referendum, uh, she described as a transfer of power to empowered middle-class Aboriginals. That's exactly what a lot of this co-governance is. It's Mm. a transfer of power to (laughs) rent-seeking, self-interested Māori cliques who... uh, Feather their own nest. I was talking to a Māori leader. Um, I was trying to get, get him uh, to come and talk to us. He's an old friend of mine. He's um, uh, had quite a few high-powered leadership roles and, and is very active within his various uh, iwi and, and uh, hapu. And he said he'd been doing quite a lot of uh, research. He's moved to a smaller place south of Gisborne, and he's been doing quite a lot of research. And he said he was really dismayed to find that often land alienation came because land had to be represented by 10 people rather than all the people who lived on it. And those 10 people often got together and they feathered their own nests. Mm-hmm. And that's where a lot of it, it comes from. And, you know, there's also, uh, did you read the article by Paul Majuri, who's uh, Nati Maru, Nati uh, Fanonga, Nati Paua, and uh, Nati Tamatera? Uh, he's an iwi leader, senior lawyer, and chief negotiator for Pare Hauraki. And yeah, he he was cross about how much uh, treaty settlement slowed under Labour. You know, a lot of it is is fighting between tribes now. Mm. It's you know, and he said the the ones who are settled, who have settled, are pulling away. Well, taking the money and run. Yep. 
Yeah, when it was his turn in the seat, Chris Finlayson operated in Graham Cullen mode. In his six years, 38 settlements were shepherded through Parliament to become settlement acts. And in 2014 alone, there were 14 settlements that passed through to final completion. Conversely, in his six years as Treaty Negotiation Minister, Angry Andrew Little and the Labour-led government, he didn't say Angry Andrew Little, I I just added that, brought just 12 settlements to conclusion many started by Finlayson. And that's, you know, that's the great mystery, isn't it? How many uh, national settled relative to Labour and how Māori just can't get out of that abusive relationship. And and he says, the injustices suffered by Pāre Hauraki will not be made whole by our treaty settlement, far from it, being mere cents on the dollar for the grievous losses suffered by our people. The final settlement milestone will provide a basic platform for our tribes to work towards our renaissance, it will represent the beginning of an opportunity to advance the cultural, social, and economic fabric of our people and local communities. You know, it's worth saying again, what we're looking at spending on climate change this decade is something like 30 times the total treaty settlements so far. And if I were a Maori iwi getting paid cents on the dollar for a greed injustice, I'd be a bit crosser about that and maybe a little bit more resistant to the climate hysteria. I might find out a little bit more, well, is this absolutely as true as they say, or is this some scheme that is going to enrich already, as we discussed earlier, super rich banking class of people? Mm. And that's one of the things that was really disappointing about Chris Finlayson, because he was very determined to get all of those settlements completed. So then that way, there was a full stop around that. You know, like the, it was justice was seen to be done amongst all of those that were affected against breaches in Article 2, and he wanted to put a big full stop to that. And he was disrupted in doing it, obviously, with the... Oh, so when you say that was what was disappointing about him, that was what was disappointing about his tenure. Yes, about his tenure, because he never got to complete what he started. Yeah. And he and well, he pumped, pumped it through, like he really... He, he did do that. And so for those that got those settlements, that they were able to sort of move forward. But what worries me now is that you have a strengthened caucus amongst the Party Māori. And I look at some of the players, not necessarily in the caucus, but certainly in the machinery. What I see there are those middle managers, are the ones yeah. that are looking at a, a nest that's going to get even more plump and feathered than what it has already been during the likes um, of the the pandemic and other. Well, I guess what I would like to see is a discussion about, especially from leaders such as the leaders of Te Pāti Māori, you know, what does your vision look like? What is your happy place for Aotearoa? Is it for everyone who doesn't have any Māori ancestry to live as a tōrekareka, some sort of slave, you know, who's, who's subordinate? to those with the sacred blood? Is it that we go back where you came from, as so many Facebook comments um, say to anyone who who argues against you? If there'll never be a full and final treaty settlement, well, what's the point of doing it? Like, mm. is, it is it just we're, we're paying money to appease you and, and stop you moaning for now? Stop you blaming all your problems on us? Who, again, it's a blood libel, essentially. Yeah. Quote Willie Jackson again, you know, well, you can't blame me for my ancestors when they went and slaughtered the uh, 
Chatham Islanders. No. Oh. Mm. And, and and so, yeah, we've we've got to face down that haka and the sacred anger that's uh, being used as a weapon to stifle debate and and uh, and also distract. It's been yeah. used to distract. It's been used. I mean, the threats of you know protests and hikoi's that will outstrip what was happened during the apartheid era Springbok tour. If there is a referendum, is not helpful, Willie. Yeah, I think we've got to stop seeing these people as clowns and and start really uh, getting our heads around how dangerous they are. And and I mean they're trying to draw parallels between what's happening in Gaza and New Zealand it should should be a a, a warning to us mm. about that. Naomi Wolf on Paul Brennan's uh, Breakfast Show. It's another interview that's worth checking out. Uh, and. I was pleasantly surprised to find that she essentially echoed my own sentiments about that conflict when she said, stop paying attention to it. Stop making a big deal about it. Look at what's going on in your own country and maybe stop going down the same path, which is exactly how I feel. Mm. Yeah, um, well, I mean, I had my little rant about that last week, didn't I? It's um, There's plenty here to focus on. If we've, if you've yeah. got somewhere you need to channel that frustration and anger, channel it here. Yeah, and let's head some uh, head some bad things off at the pass. And you know, we we're talking as well about our hope for these negotiations. You know, while media are interviewing their keyboard, you and I are both talking about how uh, we just hope they're just uniting on what our common problems are, and not getting too hung up on my new chair. Apart from Let's have that uh, inquiry into COVID. I mean, if the, if that was the bottom line for Winston Peters, uh, I think they'd be doing all right. And and I think each of each party could basically take a, res, a responsibility and run with it, and that would give them something to go back to their electorate in three years to point to, see who's works, and you know, for ACT, uh, that's probably education. You know, for for New Zealand first. Uh, settling maybe some of the racial uh, conflict and uh, some of the regional economic productivity issues, energy and uh, national um, law mm. and order maybe and um, obviously the bigger party so they're going to be doing uh, have a lot more heft but I was surprised to hear Rodney Hyde say the other day that he thought that ACT should sit on the cross benches Yeah, yeah, he's he's been quite uh, open about that uh, all mm. the way along. I don't think David Seymour will do it. I think he's I mean, there's lots of speculation about what's going on behind those closed doors. I think they're just having to iron out just the finer details because that's the thing the media haven't really focused on is the large areas of commonality that all three of them have. And often they it's a perception thing. They, they will all agree on an issue. They just perceive it slightly differently or have a slightly different view or take on how to tackle it or solve it. So, you know, that's ironing that kind of stuff out. And it will be interesting to see what sort of comes out in the final wash, who washes out here and where, and then how Luxon will hit the ground running with us in this sort of first 100 days period. And I like the idea that they want to do another proper full accounting of those books. It's going to be unsettling for people to have a picture painted of the state the nation's in and how... how much has deteriorated over the past six years. Now, because everything Labour were able to point to has come at the cost of $100 billion of extra debt. 
you know, as I've said before, if you've got $100 billion of debt, you want to have a lot more to point to than what they have, and you want to have a lot less downside. We've got considerable downside. And mm. I think um, it's really important that the Mike Kings, the Marie Buskies, <laughs> the Jacinta Price types, you know, we've got to get together and take the threat of the the radicals who would divide us and set us against each other and we've got to reject that out of hand yeah, we've got yeah. to reject the continued uh characterization of labor as kind just not very good at maths uh, so much of what they did was absolutely pernicious mm. and we need to concentrate on those things those, those commonalities and actually just you know just get out and start doing it I mean, you know, there's, there's, I'm seeing all sorts of little areas where the media is starting to just backtrack a little bit and and appear to be on. A yes, they're, they're, they're taking those first few skating steps backwards before they potentially do a pirouette and pivot yeah, the opposite like direction. Homer Simpson yeah. disappearing into the hedge, and you know, there was an editorial on the Herald on Sunday: "Public health systems need fix." Um, we hear a lot from health providers about patient-centered care. What this means, in essence, is that people who use health services should be treated in a way that respects their individual circumstances and helps them make genuinely well-informed choices about their own well-being. Consider the national health strategy adopted by Labour in July. It envisages a national health system with its users at the forefront, accessible, flexible, inclusive. Every patient would be treated as an expert in their own condition. Services would measure their performance on patients' experiences. Far too often, however, patients' experiences in our health systems fall short of these laudable ambitions. It's a pity, though, that they didn't follow that advice during the pandemic, isn't it? <laughs> well, that's what I'm kind of hinting at here. Uh, and, uh, you know, having watched Andrew Bridgen's speech in the UK to a parliament with 12, yeah. 12 MPs sitting in it, I think the, the challenge is that we don't fishtail. Mm. You know, we've got to make sure we don't overcorrect. As mm. much as I would like to see Nuremberg too, yeah, we have to make sure there's not an over overcorrection. An overcorrection, yeah. I, and the, I have to admit, I mean, and I'm going to. Usually, I don't mention COVID, but I am going to because I la actually laughed out loud at the uh, article in terms of this fifth wave. Michael Baker is very worried about a fifth wave of COVID. That guy. And a little piece of data I got sent was so so what I'm referring to, and you and you have probably all seen the article. There's been a few a little cluster of them last week, and it was in in regards to this fifth wave of COVID. And uh, Michael is suggesting, strongly suggesting, that if you're not up to date with your boosters, that you pop out and get one of those, and that uh, you may want to consider wearing um, masks in crowded environments and be very mindful of Christmas festivities because of this fifth wave of COVID. And I got a piece of data. Now, the data comes out of hospitalisation data via Tafata Aura, so it is government data. And it's new hospitalisations this week, October 31st to November 13, 2023. Of those hospitalisations for COVID, so this is in our fifth wave, people, in our fifth wave, there is uh, 79 hospitalisations. 70 of those 79 have had three or more jabs. Five have had two doses, four has had one dose, and there are no, no hospitalizations due to COVID from anyone who is unvaccinated. Ooh, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I know a lot of people who are who are getting sick, and, and you know, there are protocols that have been suggested to kind of clear out some of those spike proteins that your body's been set to manufacture, and that, and that was, I guess, for me, a really evil part of this, is that they knew that myocarditis was a risk, and rather than tell GPs, hey, look, you know, we, we've got to get on top of COVID, it's, it, it's, it's a terrible threat, but um, there is a slight risk of um, the heart damage with it. We can't really tell people that. But um, if you do see any signs of it, really take take it seriously and give them prompt treatment. Mm. Said doctors were saying, maybe it's anxiety. Mm. Maybe, maybe you're just depressed. Maybe it's your imagination. Maybe you're going a bit mad. There was that Professor Scott Galloway of NYU Stern School of Business talking on the Bill Maher show, and he said he had advocated lockdowns he said but you know the damage to kids from keeping them out of school longer was greater than the risk we were operating with imperfect information but we were doing our best let's hold ourselves accountable but have a little humility and forgiveness hmm. yeah, i don't know if you get that no well in particular particularly if you saw some of his earlier stuff which he said during that period in yeah, time. the wef guy yeah, and the atlantic be- had a had a, a story covid amnesty Fauci, Gates, and Biden should be given a pass. You know who owns the Atlantic? Bill Gates. Hmm. Anyway, hey, what else have you got on your uh, on the board, Miss Ford, for you? Well, there was an interesting couple of stories, and you know, I normally just hope and pray that you're not going <laughs> to bring up our uh, friend Shanil Lal, but he was talking about some uh, ambushes that had happened on. Uh, gay guys arranging to meet someone and then getting beaten up. And that's bad. You know, it's terrible. If, As I said, Chanel, if you're getting beaten, beaten up, I'll give you a hand. You annoy me, but no one should do that. Violence is vulgar. It's not right uh, to, to do that to someone on the basis of their sexuality. Absolutely unacceptable. Not permissible in any circumstances. And then further in the... Um, in the paper, a Norwegian citizen originally from Iran uh, was charged yesterday with aggravated terrorism for the 2022 deadly shooting ahead of an LGBTQ festival in the nightlife district of the capital, Oslo. Two people were killed and nine seriously wounded in the shooting at three locations. Now, a lot of those genderqueer leftists at the pro-Palestine protest would do well to remember that. Be careful what you're wishing for. Mm. Mm. And there's also not an absolute peep about the quarter of a million Afghans that Pakistan have said, mm, nope. Yeah. Yeah. Though there's, there's not many, there's a few things. I mean, the Brickstit thing is still not getting enough peeps. You know, something I often think after a show I feel bad about not talking to is Julian Assange. That, that guy's in a British prison. He's in solitary confinement 23 hours a day for embarrassing the US government. I think we probably should um, be a bit more outraged about that also. Mm. Well, the, on the good news front for me, because I do like to end on the good news front, we had Robbie Williams here over the weekend. I did not attend, but 50,000 people, 50,000 people over two nights uh, had perfect weather at the Mission concert. And I have to admit, I haven't seen Nate behaving with that many people for a really long time. And Post Cyclone Gabrielle, it was certainly something that warmed the cockles of my heart. And so, to everyone who made the trip to see Robbie over the weekend, thank you so much. And hopefully, you got to see a slice of the bay that we're back and everything is, you know, Yay, moving forward. 
yeah, it's it's all looking good here in the bay. And yesterday the first cruise ship was in, so it's sort of I kind of beginning to get the summer vibe. Yeah, well, certainly there've been a few days which have been hot, which is you know it's summer. That's what exactly. happens. Well, thank you. There has hopefully next week we'll be able to talk about completed coalition negotiation. That would be good. But until then, uh, thank you so much, Marty, is joining me as you always do. And as we did say before, there are a couple of interviews we we think you should really check out this week that have been fantastic. Uh, as Marty said, Naomi Wolf with Paul Brennan, and also to on the crunch uh, John Banks with. Pam Slater, both of those, just go to the app, download it, Google Play Store or your app store, whatever device you've got, head to the page, whether it be breakfast or the crunch. And of course, counterculture, there's plenty of great information there. And you can download those and listen to those at your leisure at any time. So there you go. Thanks, Marty. We'll do it all again next week. My pleasure. Thanks, Marie. And yep, have a great week. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here in the first place uh, at such a wonderful gathering of like-minded people who, like the majority of Australians, want what's best for each and every one of us. We have experienced a turning point in our nation, in Australia, with the result of our national referendum. It is one that has created hope, that has created unity, that has emboldened everyday Australians to understand that it is perfectly okay to be who you are to be proud of who you are as an individual, to be proud to be part of uh, a family that should be respected and a wider community that we should all be proud to contribute to positively. Thrust upon us as the Australian people was a referendum that sought to divide us along the lines of race to establish an entity, a bureaucracy, known only by name, called The Voice. But The Voice was based on a premise that Indigenous Australians are inherently disadvantaged for no other reason but because of our racial heritage, and suggesting that only this detailless mechanism could improve the lives of our most marginalised, the lives of those who are closest to me, those who are dear to me, and those that I've grown up alongside and had the lived experience to understand what it is they in fact needed to be able to progress within our society, within a wonderful Western society with incredible values that had become eroded because of the ideology of the left. Being told that I'm a victim because of my racial heritage uh, and for those who are our most marginalised, being told 
that they are victims of their racial heritage, of our country's history because of colonisation, effectively meant our agency had been removed. And that somehow it was the responsibility of white Australia to empower us, to empower us through our constitution, that in fact government is supposed to improve our lives. We all know that's not the case, don't we? <laughs> it's, uh, it's been an incredible journey going through this process of our referendum. The Yes campaign tried to use emotional blackmail, tried to teach everyday Australians that we belong to a racist country, tried to teach our children that they shouldn't be proud to call themselves Australian, tried to suggest that if you were voting no, that you belong to the wrong side of history. Well, we showed them otherwise. I'm personally grateful to my family for choosing to come on this journey with me to share the target on their back as I did, to establish that this was personal to us, but it also meant it was personal to everybody else's family. Having a Warpri mother who was born under a tree, whose first language was not English, who was determined to make a difference within our communities against all odds, growing up in a patriarchal culture, traditional culture, where she was supposed to become a second wife in an arranged marriage at the age of 13, to radically fight against what was expected of her to become a Minister of the Crown in our Territory Government certainly has emboldened me to take up this fight. And to have a father who was a white Australian who played a huge role in my life, a family of two different cultures, and now, of course, being married to a wonderful Scozzy and bringing up our four beautiful children as a blended family, who I can tell you now, in terms of their heritage, uh, made up of Irish, Scottish, Welsh, English, German, Scandinavian, uh, Chinese, uh, Malay, Indian. Uh, there's a great-great-grandfather from Mozambique. I suggested to our boys once that they could make a land claim, perhaps on every continent on the face of the earth. <laughs> but this is Australia. This was our family story but this story belonged to each and every Australian. And that was the most important element for us throughout this referendum, this David and Goliath struggle. We always ensured that we were prepared to take on this battle and fight with the truth. 
It has certainly emboldened my colleagues within the coalition. I've been incredibly proud to fight alongside them so that we could ensure that Australians once again knew their value as individuals who have every right to contribute meaningfully to our communities, for the betterment particularly of our most marginalised, who are Indigenous Australians whose first language is not English, who don't have access to education, unlike the elite middle-class Indigenous Australians who are attempting to ensure that there was a transfer of power to an industry built on the backs of the misery of our most marginalised through the Constitution. When we choose not to draw a line in the sand and stand up for what we know is right in the face of crippling ideology, it is our most marginalised who suffer the most. And I certainly could not stand back and allow for that to continue. The way forward from here is no more separatism, is no more dividing us along the lines of race, is no more uh, political correctness, is no more identity politics. It's about recognising our capabilities as human beings, recognising that we all have agency, recognising that we don't need another to empower us. We can do that ourselves and we can do it very well. That is the way forward. That is the better story. And certainly, I feel very grateful that after our successful referendum results in our remarkable country of Australia, that I can participate in such a wonderful event such as this and recognise that we are all in this together. And I'm very proud of Australia. And to the 150 Australians out there today, thank you very much. And if anybody from any other country would like any tips on how to push back on this ridiculous ideology, we're all here to help. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's time for the Woke News of the Week. What are some of the woke news stories that have caught my eye this week? Scottish schools encouraged to read woke. In a new literacy initiative by the Scottish Government, school children are being encouraged to read woke as part of their studies. The program involves exploring books that assert white people invented racism. The controversial recommendation comes from a book by US author Tiffany Jewell, stating that being racist against white people is not a valid concept. The initiative aims to enlighten pupils on issues of racism. Critics argue that such materials may promote a one-sided perspective on racial issues. The literacy program's implementation in Scottish state schools has sparked debates on the national curriculum and the concept of being woke. 
Stay tuned as discussions unfold on this initiative's impact and the broader implications for wider education. Things get random with Bill Maher. In a recent clash on Bill Maher's Club Random podcast, comedian Bill Maher and astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson had a clash. Maher challenged astrophysicist deGrasse Tyson over woke college campuses and transgender athletes. Maher criticised Tyson for not calling out the far left's threat on free speech on campuses. The debate also touched on transgender athletes, with Tyson proposing hormone categories in sport to address the concerns about fairness. Mark questioned the health effects of cross-hormone therapy, but Tyson dismissed his concerns. The discussion ended without a consensus, Ma defending his stance on avoiding college performances due to the challenge of avoiding offence. The lively exchange highlighted the ongoing debate on free speech and the inclusivity in educational and athletic settings. And finally, surprising stats stun John Cleese. John Cleese on GB News' The Dinosaur Hour discusses the damaging impact of cancel culture, revealing surprising statistics. Famed pollster Frank Luntz shared data indicating that one in four Brits have severed ties due to an ideological difference. Cleese engages with guests Helen Pluckrose, who is featured here on Counterculture, and academic Greg Lukianoff, exploring their personal experiences with cancel culture. Please critiques the current state of discourse, emphasising the reluctance of the woke to engage in open discussion, contrary to the essence of liberal democracy. Luntz's research highlights that Labour supporters are more likely to identify as woke, but as a significant portion of the British population remains unfamiliar with the term. Notably, one in four Brits has stopped talking to someone over differing views, with young adults being most prone to such actions. Lukianoff asserts that cancel culture has surpassed McCarthyism, describing the trend of stifling free speech on campuses since 2013. He predicts that cancel culture will be a subject of study for decades, citing a surge in professor firings reminiscent of the McCarthy era. Kalisa's exploration on the Dinosaur Hour sheds light on the divisive impact of cancel culture and its potential long-term consequences. Thank you for joining me for another great morning of culture, politics and good old-fashioned common sense. More of that here to come on Reality Check Radio with Peter Williams Afternoons. And don't forget to let us know what you think. 2057 is the text number or the email is inbox at realitycheck.radio. We'll do it all again next week. You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Busky on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Radio.